0: Warning. The following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier than thou know it alls that are anything but. Welcome back, everybody, to the Anime World Order podcast. This is show number 189. We are a little late bringing out this episode. I understand our excuse is that the world caught on fire in the time between (laughs) the release of the last episode and this one. This was originally going to be a Pride Month sort of episode, but Pride Month itself was canceled in favor of extending Meltdown May by an additional month's time or perhaps you may say it was replaced with Wrath Month. Take it either way. But typically on the Anime World Order podcast, we talk about cartoons from Japan and things pertaining to same. My name is Daryl Surratt, and I'm joined by two illustrious scholars. I don't know where they are, but I'm Gerald Rathkolb.
1: (laughs) And I'm Clarissa. I didn't say
0: scholars of what, necessarily. That's true. (laughs) Yes. Or what sort of accreditation went into receiving these titles i feel like every
2: episode we've been recording like that episode comes out and it's like the world has changed since the previous episode
0: drastically
1: it's yeah. so exhausting like it gets to like Tuesday and I feel like will this week ever end? Yeah, and yeah, I
0: think we'll get into this. I mean, you know, obviously it's been a difficult for me to focus on watching anime writing about anime even just doing recreational things because of everything that has happened. And so I feel like I may as well start off with the bad news as far as you know, what sort of happened in the time between last episode and now obviously everybody knows since it's been about a month at this point, but it's official. The ANN cast is over on account that the host and executive editor of the anime news network, Zach Birchie was just on this show for our trivia episode last November is no longer with us. Passed away about a month ago. He was 40, just a few months older than me. And if you listen to the final episode of the ANN cast, that is the audio of the memorial that was held again, the circumstance by which he passed away meant there was no, in-person sort of gathering that you could really do. And so they did it online, you know, a virtual memorial, as it were. And so you can hear the audio of that over on the Anime News Network. People were able to send in their tributes to Zach as far as, you know, all the stuff that he did. And two things really stood out for me because I was present for it. I didn't actually send anything in. While it's true that some of the people there were as like close loved ones and close friends and things like that, a whole lot of the people were members of a community that he'd built up outside of anime, like basically from Mm. just late night getting together to watch pirated movies sort of thing Like a
1: CYS. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Zach was big into watching like all sorts of movies with just a bunch of people and a lot of bad movies, anything, just hanging with friends.
0: Because he was on the West Coast, he'd start like 11 p.m. Pacific time, and so I would typically not be part of this, even though given the choice, usually that's usually not my style of way to approach media anyway. But every once in a while I'd drop in and my recollection was like, uh, you know, I dropped in while they were watching Commando. And even when they were watching Commando, they were like, you know what? There's no making fun of this movie. This movie just is on its own. Like You can't <laughs> actually surpass what's actually being shown on the screen. And so that was a instance where they were quasi defeated by the power of Arnold. Mm. But the thing that stood out to me was just the sheer number of people who showed up, the sheer number of people who are hugely affected. Let's be real. None of us is getting that kind of send off ourselves. Few people in the world will get that kind of a send off. You know, I never fostered a community or anything like that. I don't have people who know me to the degree that people like deeply knew him. If you listen to Jake's eulogy, uh, he made it clear that he was effectively a victim of the pandemic, even though he did not die of of COVID because Justin, you mean Justin, that's right. Uh, It's been, it's been a while, but you know, as Gerald, you sort of mentioned in the last episode, you were saying, man, I really wish the movie theaters were open back up. The gyms were open back up because I'm, you know, losing on my, uh, my regiment. Well, it, It turned out Zach really needed the movie theaters to be open. He really needed the gym to be open. He really needed those theme parks because those were his Mm -hmm. outlets. And so yeah, when you take those things away, that makes it really hard to deal with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's rough for folks that already have depression or anxiety or these kinds of issues. It it certainly makes things harder, the isolation, the additional stress just from everything being on fire around you. (laughs)
2: Yes, every single news story, every single thing that you see yeah. is just another pain upon pain, and so I don't blame people.
1: Yeah. I constantly go back and forth about like wanting to be like engaged with news. That's why I was like gone on Twitter for a while cuz I was just like everything was just miserable. <laughs> and I was just like, "Okay, I can't.
0: I just don't have a choice." You come back to Twitter when it's the worst time ever. Like I in know. memory. But it's because we don't have the luxury of being able to ignore these things. And it's one of those things where, you know, it's yeah. hard to focus on anime because there's all these things that are more pressing, but you have to go on and yeah.
1: th- I have been sort of self-defensively adding more cute animal accounts to my Twitter feed though.
0: <laughs> it's important.
2: I I recommend uh, Cat Cafe Nekorobi in Japan. They yes. post their cute cat pics every day.
0: I'm glad I didn't send anything in for the memorial because there's nothing I would have been able to say about Zach on that level. I didn't know him that deeply compared to a lot of other people. But I'll say this about Zach because I knew him for many, many years. Right before the podcast started, Zach did give me my first professional, like as in paid anime writing gig for Anime Insider. And I always approach my writing even to this day for otaku usa and stuff like that i don't really treat it like i am doing a job i'm mostly just like approaching it as a hobby sort of thing i'll say this about zach zach was a professional i may get paid and so Mm -hmm. technically i'm a professional but zach was a real professional
1: yeah yes he was on
0: this podcast i always say we talk about anime i say i review things i don't say i critique things zach was a critic of anime like you know a lot of people don't know the difference so let me just sort of break down why i make that distinction i don't like to say i'm a journalist because i don't break news i don't cover news with Mm -hmm. due diligence and investigation and verification of sources i'm a commentator i weigh in after other people do the actual hard part as far as critique like yeah maybe when we do reviews i'll have like maybe one or two lines or a little bit of critique but generally speaking what I say, what I write is recommendations aimed at people. Go watch this. Don't go watch that. Yeah. Criticism is like analysis and evaluation of a work and the medium itself. That was what Zach did. And so I always sort of make that little distinction in my mind. And it's because I was able to see like how he comported himself. Like he, what I got like, when Anime Insider, like I, I didn't have that job for long because I was like making fun of, the editor and the stuff he would write, which is, you know, if you're a professional and you want to have a job, you (laughs) don't really do these things. But I don't really give a shit because it's just like a thing that I'm doing. But no, he was deeply involved in like making anime journalism have integrity. And so for that, I think we've definitely lost something as far as that goes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't know Zach very well. We didn't really talk and I didn't necessarily always agree with him on stuff. But I mean, I really respected just the amount of hard work that he put in all the time right i will never in my life <laughs> accomplish as much as he did cuz he just was really dedicated and took everything really seriously and worked really hard and also always like tried to help other people make it as well
2: yeah i was very grateful when he hired me to write about grave of the fireflies which was such an intimidating thing to write about was great working for him then, and I think it says something that there's a lot of things I didn't agree with him on. They weren't like huge fundamental things necessarily. They were like no. you know, what he thought of some movies, or they were what he thought of some anime series, or you know things like that. L- yeah. Not not big things um necessarily, but that I still liked and respected him certainly enough that we were very very happy and glad to have him on as our guest for our annual trivia episode. So that was. Great. It's a terrible, terrible loss. And, you know, we miss him terribly. ANN Cast was great because they were kind of the only anime podcast out there. And I mean, you get this when you have a website that has like a million visitors a month. They have the clout to get certain people on their show. Right. They have the clout to ask them some heavy questions sometimes. That's it's a big loss. So uh, we we miss you dearly.
0: Because I look at our guest spots, we were frequently guests on AN and Cast with Zach. As I count, I was on about 20 times. I was on two, I think. Two.
1: Yeah, I think I was on like once or <laughs> <laughs> maybe twice. I don't know.
0: But anyway, if you want to listen to those episodes, they do remain available for download. You can go to our website, which is www.animeworldorder.com. That has links to this episode, all of our previous episodes. There's a guest spots tab up at the top that has all of our guest appearances on other podcasts. So I will give you fair warning that uh, many of those podcasts are defunct now. (laughs) And so you may find a lot of those links are dead, but just sort of a a testament to all the places that we've been on. We'll still do guest spots on other shows and things like that. One thing that did stick out to me was with all the things that have been going on is how many new anime voices and sites and podcasts have come around that I'm just not aware of if any of them happen to be listening to this, I'll say this. If you send us a promo, we'll play your promo for your show. If you want us to be a guest, we'll gladly be on your show. We're not like walling ourselves off or anything like that. And even though Zach sort of gave that persona at times, he was very accommodating to new voices, like you said, Clarissa, Mm -hmm. making sure that different viewpoints would get expressed that may be underrepresented in in a lot of places. So my hat's off to the guy. At least I happen to know that For the time being, A&N goes on, though I currently don't have an editor (laughs) to send pieces to. Right now, it hasn't really been my key focus to write about anime in the meantime anyway.
2: Right. One last thing, you know, reach out to your friends. A lot of people don't ask for help. They just kind of suffer silently. And so, you know, reach out to them. This is a hard time. We're all sort of separated. Stay in touch with people. Make sure that they know that there's someone out there thinking about them. It's a tough time. we got to get through it together.
0: With yeah. that in mind, I will now hard pivot over to the other stuff that was going on throughout the month, at least in the world of Japanese animation and fandom activities pertaining to same because in the previous episode, we had talked about the advent of the virtual anime convention, and mm-hmm. now yes. that has kind of exploded Within the past month, there have been several of them, so much to the point that I haven't really actually be able to even, air quote, virtually attend all of them. But I did at least go to two of them, and there have since been many more, and there are more to come as recently as this week, and we'll get into that. I first want to talk about Cloud Matsuri. This was a UK-based convention that did, uh, it was basically part of the company All the Anime which releases a lot of really good stuff. I've actually imported some of their releases just to have over here because I was like, Oh, it's not coming out here. And then it of course would invariably come out here, but (laughs) they had a whole bunch of really heavy hitting guests for their cloud Matsuri. A lot of studio representatives, a lot of Japanese guests, things like that. But I got to say, of all the virtual cons I've gone to, this is probably the one that so far that I enjoyed the least. And I'm going to tell you why. For one, they streamed it on YouTube rather than Twitch. And as far as a live streaming platform is concerned, I know YouTube is throwing a whole lot of money at famous content creators, but the audience isn't really there. I think the highest amount of viewers I ever saw there was 200 people on the YouTube channel. And this is when you've got your guests are people like president of Polygon Pictures there to talk about how Polygon Pictures is the longest existing CG animation studio in the world, not just anime. And yet they're still so bad at it. And then they also had uh, Science <laughs> Saru, which was like the big main guests, uh, Unyoung Choi and, you know, the people who worked on Keep Your Hands Off Isaac Yeah,
1: I wanted to catch that one, but I uh, wasn't able to. Well, well nobody was able to, even if, you, was were to, yes. even if yes. you were there,
0: Clarissa, because here's the other problem.
1: They have
0: no VOD, no video on demand. You had to be there or miss it. They're in the UK, they're five hours time difference. And then on top of that, the stream had major, major problems throughout to the point that the big centerpiece of it, that science Saru panel had such bad buffering and stuttering things that they had to rebroadcast it the next day. Cause it was like, Oh, we're ending with the world premiere of the upcoming science, sorry, remake of Japan sinks uh, as the anime, mm-hmm. the famous story. And I feel like so much of this was like the antithesis of like, even though the guests were great, like it's so inorganic. I mean, yes, it's true that it's got to be pre-recorded, just by time zone differences and stuff like that. But then you have to go well out of your way, If you're going to stream on YouTube to not have that stream be saved as a video on demand and they can say, oh, that's a legal thing. I don't I fail to see how it's a legal thing because no other convention has had this restriction in the past or, you know, that I've seen thus far. Every single other one I've seen was like, oh, yeah, we'll put things up afterwards in case you miss it. That being said, there was another virtual con shortly after Because Momocon, the convention out in Georgia, they did, we'll do Momocon online. Get it? Because it's Momocon online. And they did something that I hadn't seen before. Because up to this point, a virtual con was you tune into this one website and you'll see the content. Well, because Momocon is kind of a big gaming con, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise, it's a gaming con. They had not one, but two concurrent stream channels. One was like Momocon main, which is what Momocon mainly is known for. Video game convention, video game guests of honor. Yes. That sort of stuff. Anime is a side thing. Right. Well, then they had a secondary channel and that is where you had your partial anime stuff. All those panels were pre-recorded. And I got to say, even though I'm not a fan of fully pre-recorded panels, it is kind of a necessary evil And let's face it, panels with live audience interaction are death anyway. I don't know (laughs) if I would really want to do necessarily a, a live mixed clip show style panel in this way. But I think for most panels, it's probably the way to go. And luckily, because the people who run Momocon are smart, or maybe because they're just not bound by some mysterious Japanese contracts, the Momocon panels have been posted to YouTube. You can go and watch them now. That being said. There's not a lot of viewership for these panels. I'm looking at them right now. Some of these views are in the single digits. Some of them are maybe small double digits. The biggest one I see is the Overwatch voice actor panel, which, of course, every year at MomoCon they get Overwatch voice actors and fill a huge room. And that panel has 15,000 views. I think part of that was people were just hoping they would reveal something about Overwatch 2 because that comes out soon. But it's just the gap in interest levels.
1: Yeah. I think also, like, since this is kind of like a quickly developing thing, these new online versions of conventions, I think it's also kind of easy to miss some of these things, depending on, of course, like who you follow. And I know sometimes, like, it also depends on the site, because I think one of the problems that I remember having, and I think it was with Cloud Matsuri, that when you go to the website it wasn't as like easy as it seemed like it should have been to get the link to view it and like the schedule of events
0: right right show me the link to the stream and show me the yeah. schedule and sometimes yeah. it's hard to get these things and it's also very strange
2: like the cost for streaming something to twitch is 0 it is 0 dollars to stream it there And so I'm curious, like, what the reasoning was not to stream it to the biggest streaming platform in the world. I don't know.
0: Sometimes it's terms of service stuff. Sometimes it's.
1: Yeah, who knows? Who knows
0: what? But in any case, I would like to highlight even though a lot of people we know did panels for it. And I did watch you guys panels, but my personal favorite just for the interest of time, since we're, you know, already 20 minutes in was one moderated by good old Darius Washington in which he had Helen McCarthy and Tim Eldred on to discuss their upcoming book, Leiji Matsumoto essays on the manga and anime legend. Both Helen and Tim have been on the show in the past. We should probably get Tim on again Helen Helen has Helen has never been on the show. Helen has been on the show. When? I've had her in recordings when we were at AWA and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Not okay. I thought like as an online. No, girl. no, right. never she never had was her in, like... She was in the room. That, yeah, more or less. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I count it. Says, <laughs> I, I understand. <laughs> the book is, they got a bunch of people to write about Matsumoto. They actually have a new interview that's never been published before. And the foreword is by Giles Poitras, who I think, uh, he is, he is still listening right now. Giles Poitras, another longtime veteran writer on anime, since he wrote Anime Essentials and in both installments of The Anime Companion way back when. Most recently, you can hear him on the commentary tracks for the Anime Go Kickstarter titles, of Otakuno Video and Writing Bean. And I'm going to pretend that I'm going to quickly mention in post now that Giles is actually about to start making new additions to the web supplement portal of the Anime Companion, in which he'll be doing the deep dive on Descending Stories Rakugo Shinju after we sort of jogged his memory on that one, thanks to our Decade in Review. So thanks nice. for, for writing in to inform us of that, Giles. And he's also got some interesting new projects lined up that he'll probably announce on his own. But uh, one, my favorite thing about the panel was Darius did some editing of video clips and still images into this thing as they were talking. But what Darius did not do is what I would have done, which is re-edit myself to sound like I was cooler than how I actually delivered it live at the time. But no, Darius is too humble <laughs> and is like, no, no, this is me. This is how I stumbled off on this thing. It's real. It's, it's, it's real. It's, it's, it's verite. So do check that out. Uh I would be interested to see if these things, like if the word gets out, if people like what they see or not, because again, another sort of impediment to the whole virtual con thing is the fact that these style of panels that we are used to doing don't really exist on the West Coast. It's kind of new to them. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of times people have said like, oh, this was the first time I've seen this style of panel done by this person or we don't have anything like this over for soccer con or for AX or something like that. And so on the subject of that, this weekend is Fourth of Jolly Weekend, which historically is Anime Expos convention weekend. However, we're at the point now where virtual cons are now crowding themselves out, man, because Yeah, and yeah, Funimation this is I wanted to bring up. Yeah. Announced FunnyCon right after anime lockdown. Finished. And we all sort of scratched our heads at the date that they announced because they said it was going to be over 4th of July weekend. And we we're like, well, that's something because Anime Expo is always that weekend too. Well, Anime Expo has announced Anime Expo Lite that very same weekend. So AX is uh. going to have their virtual con going at the exact same yeah. time as Funimation's got their virtual con.
1: And why? And there's not, no restriction for, like, reserving space.
0: Yeah, it's not like, oh, there's the- only so many major hotel venues, and they're only open on these weekends, so we have to run opposite. That doesn't exist. It's not like Funimation
2: doesn't know this. Right. Ever since AX has started, it's been Fourth of July weekend. So that's very strange. And I think we're coming to a fundamental, like, problem with I a I mean, lot I don't get it.
1: Like, to me, like, I feel like if I were a company i feel like i wouldn't compete with someone else if i didn't have to you
0: would think right like you saw this with e3 when e3 was canceled a lot of the companies were like okay well we'll do our own direct event sort of thing and we're not going to run it the exact same time as microsoft or sony is doing their thing we'll Mm -hmm. look at a time that is not when they're doing it and then we'll go accordingly yeah they did new games plus which was great
2: Needs a bit of work, but I mean, it was, a, it was a good thing for, like, the type of stuff I'm interested in. Exactly. But what gets me is, fundamentally, this is, we're getting to an interesting thing about these cons, which is one of the biggest appeals that these cons have is that they are held close to you. Sometimes it's about, you know, the people- Well, it people depends do- on the
1: con. I mean, a lot of the big ones-
2: Well, and hold on. Yeah, meet hot singles in your area.
1: One's like Anime Expo. I mean, people travel cross-country.
2: And I understand that. However, what we are seeing and we're seeing this is that there are diminishing returns with these cons as they're being held because Mm. the cons bleed into each other in terms of like how much more unique content is this one con going to provide that the other con didn't provide.
1: That's true, because usually people can only go to so many conventions. Like, unless you work in the industry and it's your job to go to conventions. Sure. Yes. You probably only go to two.
0: Right now, the only thing is time. Maybe. Yeah. Two cons is about what I would typically be able to do here because plane tickets and hotels and stuff cost money. Yeah, But now, like in the case of Kod Matsuri, I was sort of tilted because, hey, if you weren't there, you missed it at that exact time. And that's too close to an actual physical convention that you're not taking Mm -hmm. advantage of the virtual space environment. Erica right. Friedman did a YuriCon panel that she scheduled initially to be like, okay, well, one Cloud Matsuri ends, I'm going to do mine. And of course, because of their technical difficulties, they ended up having to run their Isaacan panel rerun opposite when she was going to do hers. It's okay. She still did her panel. It went great. I got her to be interested in the idea that there really needs to be a Yuri manga about the roller derby. There should be. And so she's on, <laughs> she's on board with this. I'm
1: kind of amazed there isn't one.
0: The other thing that she pointed out is for accessibility purposes, it should be a case where, Hey, YouTube and like these streaming platforms do support closed captioning. And you should be able to, especially if you are able to have full control over your stream, which, you know, maybe not all these virtual cons will permit that you should be able to set up like a closed captioning or even a text to speech, sort of closed captioning. Like a lot of Twitch streamers have just for the sake of being more accessible to people in this online mm-hmm. environment. Cause that's the other big advantage of the virtual con is that people with accessibility needs or who have trouble traveling either due to um, like a, a physical need or just like an anxiety social one, they can still experience a convention and yet you don't really see that being done at like these big major event sort of levels. And so as far as AX, they're going to be on YouTube and Twitch, FunnyCon is only going to be on the Funimation website, which normally you have to pay for, but they're saying, oh, well, don't worry. It's free if you register and you can watch the stream. I guarantee you they are going to have their metrics people monitoring every user that registers, every link they click on, what they watch for how long Mm -hmm. to see what is viable at the corporate level for Funimation. And that's the other thing.
1: That's
0: what everyone does now. Expo yeah. and FunnyCon are 100% industry corporate. You're not really going to see a whole lot of fan type things there, as is par for the course with the West Coast style of anime convention. There's one more bit before uh, we move on, which is Otacon. And we would usually go to Otacon every year. They're one day, they're going to do an Otacon online thing. And they are like saying, all right, we're not going to have one stream. Momocon, that's cool if you had two streams. You know what? We're not even bothering with three streams. No, we're doing six simultaneous streams, all on Saturday, August 1st.
1: Seems like too much, man. It is basically... This is
2: mystifying to me, because when I saw the subjects of these streams, they've got, like, a gaming stream. Okay, that's all fine and good, but here is the thing that gaming rooms serve at an anime convention. They're generally one of two purposes. One is, they're a good place to go for downtime between other things and two they're what people who don't watch the anime go to the anime con for it's interesting to me that they would have like a dedicated stream for gaming when those people already
0: have plenty of outlets online they very well that. organized infrastructure for online tournaments
1: i mean i don't know what they're doing for the game room i don't know if it's it is like live tournaments and stuff but usually like when people go to the game room at a con they go to actually play stuff are people actually going to be able to like play in like live tournaments on their gaming channel? No,
0: it's basically a tournament, like a, a standard sort of like, okay, here's the, whatever tournament is going to happen oh. here. And so right. it's basically the way that they've set it up on paper is as close to the full con experience as it gets, because there's going to be like a dedicated room just for builder workshops, just like there'd be, if you went to a physical con, a cosplay stream, a video game stream, a music performance stream, etc. And then they have two anime panel streams that are going to be going on. And so that means you are going to have to choose what you see and what you miss. I don't know how much of this will be put up afterwards, hopefully all of it. But in, in this case, as far as the social aspect, as far as being able to interact and chat with other people or think whatever it is like that, you now have to make a decision of, well, which of these things am I going to see? And which of these things yeah. am I going to miss?
1: I mean, at least if it's VOD, like, then you can go back to it later. Right. Though, how often do
0: we say, like, when we go to cons and you're like, oh, on paper, you're going to see people. But really, your extent of seeing someone is I'm walking to this thing and you see somebody, you know, walking to the other thing. And you can say, hey, <laughs> and that's all you see him for the weekend. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of what's going to happen here. Otacon is interesting. Like I did. It was really, really hard for me to get up for it. But like I was able to put one panel application in just because I need to I just need to do anime panel work. So st- I just need to be busy doing things. I guess they will find a way for me to do that if I am accepted because they have a requirement where if you show a video clip, you have to put a copyright citation on the video clip itself. This is the number one reason why I didn't submit because yeah. it would be dozens and dozens of things. I would All have I to- do is show video yeah. clips. I I'm going to have at least 20 some clips if I get approved minimum. And, uh, you know, with everything going on, even before Zach passed away, I just have a hard time doing this sort of stuff. And in this case, the panel I can do with their content restrictions is my 30 years ago, retrospective that 30 years ago piece was something i you know, I, I actually did that for Zach and now Zach is gone and I never got my article to go up, but I have art. I have it written and I never did my 20 years ago retrospective because who am I going to give this thing to? And so it's kind of like, uh, in the past, this used to be like the easy thing. Cause I'd be like, here's my article I already wrote and let me just take the work I already did and turn it into <laughs> a panel. And now it's like the opposite. Now it's like, I have to actually hustle to do this work. And, uh, I have, maybe less than a month to do that in, but at least on the bright side, I've already got it all written out. So yeah. um, I know we're about half an hour in, but before we get to our review, I would like to do one last thing. And that is something we haven't done all freaking year. And that's actually read emails. Cause in order to get emails, you got to read emails <laughs> for the last six months or so. We haven't really done that. Maybe more than that. So before I do that, I want to remind everyone if you would like to send us an email, our email address is animeworldorder at gmail.com. If you write a message that's good enough or smart enough and doggone it, we like it, we'll read it on the show, and then we will give you a free one-year membership to Write Stuff's Got Anime program, which is pretty darn great. I'll talk about that, you know, a little bit later. But this email that I've selected is from rachel and here's what she writes hi awo so i just finished watching the entire fist of the north star tv show one and two and the original movie i'm really sorry i never made time to watch the show before because i loved it when it was good it was amazing and when it was bad It was still quite entertaining in a different way. I often ended up watching several episodes in a row, even if my original intention had been to watch only one. I never Mm. ended up late for work due to this, but I definitely picked finding out what happened next over getting enough sleep more than once. I tend to like shonen fighting shows anyway, and having watched more modern examples, I could definitely see the influence. My favorite character was probably Toki with Ray or maybe Shu second. I learned very quickly that I absolutely could not trust this show as it lied to me repeatedly about what was really going on or what had really happened to who. Sometimes the suspicion served me well, but at other times it meant that I spent multiple episodes not sure if a character was really dead or not and was annoyed to find out that yes, so-and-so was really, really dead this time. Maybe. <laughs> That said, I thought it was great for narrative and dramatic purposes that just because a character was a super strong, muscle-bound martial arts monster with a heart of gold or heart of madness, depending on the soundtrack you're listening to, didn't mean they were safe. Even Ken occasionally Mm. got curb stomped. I'm extremely miffed. There's no easy way to officially read the manga because I would definitely be interested. Personal pet peeve time. The one thing that never quite stopped being annoying to me was Kokuo, Black King. And the other horses in the show. I love horses and have drawn them at least since I was four or five years old, so I am super attuned to how they look in illustration or animation. There were many scenes where Kokuo looked great, and I was so happy. These were usually followed, often in the very next shot, by Kokuo looking like a mutant creature that had maybe been a horse (laughs) several hundred iterations ago. It was very distracting. Especially when I was clearly meant to be paying attention to the big dramatic things that were happening with the plot, not wondering if Rao's horse had been caught up in a Star Trek style transporter incident just off screen. Sadly, anime rarely does horses very well.
1: See, this is part of the problem with not having enough women animators, right? Because, like, you gotta get those you gotta horse, get girls, get those horse girls
0: who, you know, <laughs> choose to love their horse more than anything. Spend hours, spend hours figuring drawing out the horses. how to draw. <laughs> And that was why Yoshiaki Kawajiri was like, damn it, I can't ever do another Vampire Energy. This motherfucker is always on a horse and no one knows how to draw the goddamn horse, right? And so I always (laughs) animate the horse. And why did I do Ninja Scroll? Because he's on a horse and all this. I always have to draw horses. God damn it. I'm no more horses. That was like. Embrace your inner horse, girl. As she continues, though, Studio Ghibli is better than many, the best and most consistent I've seen are probably the two horses in the third mobile suit Gundam movie of the original trilogy, which is not Uh. where I would have expected to see any horses at all. (laughs) And the recent Romance of the Three Kingdoms DVD release. Thank you, Discotech. Now, please bring over the other two. And Now, bonus points on that Romance of the Three Kingdoms DVD release because I think they said that was like the last DVD that Discotech was ever going to release because no one buys DVDs anymore. Nobody bought that Romance of the Three Kingdoms DVD release. So bonus points to Fist of the North Star, Gundam, and Romance of the Three Kingdoms for not having all the horses be exactly the same color. Pet peeve over. If you happen to be wondering why I suddenly decided to watch Fist of the North Star, well... It's all Sentai Filmworks' fault. They had DD Fist of the North Star as part of their Christmas sale, and I decided to take a chance on it. Uh. I'd seen a couple episodes of Fist of the North Star on streaming years ago and liked it enough to pick up the Discotech complete series standard def on Blu-ray release, which is awesome, by the way. When I found it cheap on eBay or maybe Right Stuff, I don't remember, it was a long time ago, I made the mistake of putting it on the shelf... And it was then promptly lost in the depths of my anime collection. I know that feeling all too well, Rachel. Yep. Until last December, I could tell right from the first episode of DD Fist of the North Star that even though I thought it was funny, I was clearly missing jokes. I was in between series at the time, so I decided to give the original a go. Six months later, here we are, having now spent one hundred and 50-plus episodes, and a movie in the world and with the characters of Fist of the North Star, I find myself not sure where to turn next, what to watch next. Oh, I have new Fist of the North Star and Legend of the Dark King official releases, not subs or rips. Plus, I managed to dig up fansubs of all five of those newer movies and OVAs. I would so love to have an official release of these. Is there any hope? Do you have any suggestions about where I should start or in what order I should watch any or all of the above? So I can answer this new fist of the North star is set after all that stuff. And then the newer movies and OVAs and legend of dark King are basically retelling the story. Of course, legend of dark King is supposed to be a prequel to those things. So hopefully that answers that. So thanks for your suggestions and for continuing to do the show. AWO is the first podcast I ever listened to and is still my favorite. I'm fortunate enough to be able to listen to podcasts at work. So I don't mind at all when an episode is three hours long, like your last episode. The first episode I ever listened to was 60 C because it was about Blackjack, which I already knew Ah. about and loved. But I don't think that was the latest episode at the time. I've been on board ever since and I've gone back and listened to the earlier episodes as well. Once in a while, I even re-listened to episodes, often because I finally gotten around to actually watching or reading that something you guys reviewed or talked about. The list of titles you've piqued my curiosity about is quite long and you've definitely taught me to be more aware of production staff. I was very pleased when you finally got a Patreon and have subscribed at the $1 level for now. Thanks again. Keep up the great work. P.S. Since I suspect you may be curious, I am a 40 year old single woman who has been watching anime and reading manga for about 20 years now, not counting watching Voltron on TV when I was a kid and didn't know what anime was. In apparent defiance of all expectations, not only did I love Fist of the North Star, I also don't like BL. Sorry, Clarissa. (laughs) Or Hentai. It's fine. Not sorry, Gerald. We'll have to find (laughs) our common ground over an affection for giant robots. Shin Getter robo versus Neo Getter robo was everything I wanted it to be. Thanks very much, Rachel. We will definitely be sending Look, you I, a membership.
1: I could never be disappointed in a woman of culture who appreciates blackjack.
0: But she appreciates blackjack, but not BL. It exists. It happens. It's uh, real. It's out you there.
1: Know.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like who is
2: young blackjack for? Uh, she's allowed to be in the room with me. <laughs> that's, that's about it. So what Clarissa's thinking right now? But Fist of the North Star is so interesting to me because I was just thinking about it like a little while ago, and I am not a big fan of Shonen fighting series. Generally, they kind of bore me, but I do like Fist of the North Star a lot.
1: Is it just your boner for large men?
2: Well, there's that because I love Baki <laughs> a whole lot, third season on, on Netflix right now. But I also think that it's interesting to me because it was... Writing the rules of shonen fighting like as it was being made. Mm. Because the rules for shonen fighting largely came from the rules for shonen sports shows. A similar thing, but there's a lot of things that Fist of the North Star doesn't do that a
0: lot of modern shows do. Right, because Kidikuman did those things or because Masami Kurumada did those things. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things that always bores the shit out of me is
2: the hugely long training arc. There was no training arc in Fist of the North Star. It was completely assumed. Oh,
1: because Ken's already a master.
2: That's the thing, is that it's already assumed from the look of him and from the fact that no one can deal with him that there's no need to show a training arc. They mentioned it a couple of times, and it's assumed like it was hell that they went through it, but you don't need to show a training arc. Also, what was pointed out was that there's no tournament arc in the series at all. Another thing that usually bores the hell out of me.
1: Well, I think it's interesting too because like thinking of the fact that there's no training arc is also the fact that most shonen protagonists are because the audience is primarily teenagers most shonen protagonists are teenagers so they wouldn't necessarily be like a master already whereas ken is an older character so he's already been through all and of that. to go
0: back to your previous observation that arises out of shonen sports certainly from star of the giants on throughout draw the line like a lot of the focus on that was people training to get better for koshian or something like that mm-hmm. yeah and so that's where a lot of that stuff sort of came into play even Ashtano joe joe has to learn how to box right yeah yeah they start him from absolute
2: zero. But there is no like chunk in the beginning where Ken is like a young man who is learning to fight and punch and everything. And they skip all of that. And it's Mm -hmm.
1: actually
0: very refreshing.
1: I wonder if that's like the martial arts movie influence or like the action movie influence.
0: Certainly the original Dragon Ball had a lot more of that old classic martial arts movie influence to it. And that certainly because it was so successful and people said, oh, well, that's got training arcs in it and that's got a tournament. Let's follow suit.
2: Right. People forget that, like, the original Dragon Ball, the number of tournaments in that show was just painful. Like, they would have, like, five episodes of actually moving the story forward, another, like, 25-episode tournament arc. I mean, it got awful to sit through that show.
0: So I guess your recommendation is not Dragon Ball, then.
2: (laughs) My straight-up recommendation is if she likes Fist of the North Star, Baki is, like, the next step. That is absolutely, like... Same deal, same sort of stuff right there.
0: Another exceptional pick, you could also draw the line. We've covered this in the past. He already knows this because we talked about it, but certainly there's JoJo's Bizarre Adventure right there as well. Yeah. And that has a very thriving current contemporary fan base, unlike Fist of the North Star, where, you know, the current fan base for it all maniacs like us. Even though Fist of the North Star is like
2: the 12th largest franchise in the world. Again, people forget. Like Fist of the North Star
0: is. We're not huge. talking anime. We're talking like if you were to line up every like pop culture franchise. Right, yes. right. Yeah, I mean the the largest one is anime related. It's Pokemon, and like the second largest. But it,
1: it never got as popular in the U.S. I mean, it's like Saint Seiya, right? Saint Seiya is exactly. huge.
0: Exactly. Yes. Saint Seiya is ex- basically exactly. everywhere else. And, right. and as she mentions, right. it's because we didn't get it at the time, and you still can't get yeah. the manga easily. I have the manga through yeah. a freak ability to pay way too much money for a bizarre arcane (laughs) e-reader device that isn't particularly good i'm so angry
1: it's a shame too because like i'm not the biggest fist of the north star fan but i bought those like older the large color editions and those are are really
0: nice yeah
1: It'd be nice if they could reprint those.
2: It would be nice if we could just get the manga. Yeah. And like a normal manga
0: is released.
1: So ridiculous.
0: I think all of this ties together of why she was saying, is there any hope for those newer movies and OVAs? And I think it's because North Star's Pictures, which is the company that owns the rights to Fist of the North Star and City Hunter and all that stuff like that. They were sort of founded when the original author, you know, Tetsu Hara, along with Tsukasa Hojo, City Hunter author and, you know, one or two others, broke away from Shueisha and Jump and said, we're doing our own thing. For whatever reason, ever since then, they've been very hard pressed to actually have like a good quality anime release of something or to have like a proper English language localization of their stuff for manga let's say they always try to reinvent the wheel in a very arcane way like you know Raijin Comics was their thing because Gutsune Entertainment is comics and all that stuff that's them it's kind of
2: a miracle well remember the, the nobody knows nobody knows what Raijin Comics was
0: like you just we talked about something. that right. long ago
2: because it's assumed <laughs> yeah, that you've listened to ago. all
0: 188 previous episodes of AW
2: <laughs> yeah Raijin Comics was the best thing ever it, it was. was a weekly awesome manga anthology that I've got every issue of And they would have Fist of the North Star and City Hunter. Fist of the Blue Sky. Oh, yeah. Fist of the Blue Sky and a lot of, like, really, really neat stuff in it. But it was stuff that was made basically for me and Daryl and... (laughs) And nobody else. Yeah. And so it didn't last. It was a shame. It was great.
0: Yeah. North Star's pictures, they want to have, like, way too much control and not give anybody their cut. And the reason that we even have, like, the Fist of the North Star anime that we have is because... Maybe the person, the main party that they had to deal with to license it wasn't them. Maybe you could license Fist of the North Star mm. by going to Toei. You don't have to go to them because Toei made the show. You know, that's sort of the reason. Whereas yeah. those new movies, those new OVAs, when I say new, I mean only over a decade now because it's been quite a while.
1: I mean, I thought those came out here, though. Or is it just that they're out of print? No, frame?
0: they never came out here. Oh, okay. Well, Legend of the Dark King came out. Legend of the Dark King did, but that's like a prequel yes. to something that never came out here. Those three movies and those two OVAs that mm. we never saw. And so I think it's just a weird thing of the licensing and even discotech like they haven't gotten that. And maybe they'll be able to get it Those? now that City Hunter is coming out. But for all I know, City Hunter is coming out because they went to Sunrise for it. The only thing I'm holding mm. out hope for is that they released the City Hunter movie, the new one, Shinjuku Private Eyes.
1: Well, that movie's out. It
0: is out. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, is that, okay, yeah, that I've was able a- to happen. And typically, a lot of the stuff from North Star's Pictures, well, maybe it comes out in some small release, and usually it doesn't. Yeah, we will see if that comes out, and who knows? I've been waiting for a long time. I really wish that there were a release of the Fist of the North Star TV
2: series that Toei didn't Toei it up and have the shittiest audio quality that you can imagine on that thing. But my understanding is that that was how it was originally recorded. Yes. My understanding is that Toei was fucking cheap and didn't record it on like four inch tape. No. And just used like the cheap shitty tape. And so that is why the best audio version that you'll ever find of that are the weird like people who recorded it off of TV.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, a lot of that stuff, it's like they never really planned for a home video market. No. No. It wasn't a thing.
2: No, but even the other things that were done at that time, and even in the 70s, like you can get... Well, sure. You can get Galaxy yeah, Express 3.9. Yeah. That was done in the 70s, and that has got some decent audio quality to it. Better than Fist of the North Star, right, because right. Toei being Toy. is a cheap fucking company. And they are always cheap and will always be cheap, unfortunately.
0: We will uh, take a quick break, and when we get back, let's actually review cartoons but before we do that, couple quick corrections are in order. As I'm recording this, right this second, there's not one, not two, not three, but four simultaneous virtual anime conventions happening right now. Because not only is there FunnyCon going on, not only is there two channels worth of Anime Expo, but there's also CurlCon Online the virtual convention for kurotsuki kon as well as the anaplex online fest i've been spot checking a couple of these i've been noticing really big differences in viewership between the things that are on twitch versus the things that are on youtube funimation's thing is just through i guess livestream.com but through the funimation website so they can you know collect your email address A lot of virtual convention spaces taking up our time, and a lot of them seem like they are be there or miss it. Doesn't seem like there's going to be a lot of VODs for these industry-driven virtual cons. But anyway, this 4th of July installment of the Anime World Order podcast is brought to you by RightStuffAnime.com, which is right now in the midst of their birthday sale. That's right, they've been around 33 years So you get an average of 45% off, with some items up to 90% off. I'll pick a couple titles for an example. If in show number 173, when we had on Erica Friedman, interested you and you wanted to check out Kase-san and Morning Glories, but you were intimidated by the fact that at the time it wasn't yet licensed and yet to pay $80 to import it, well, now you can get it for $9.98 on Blu-ray, courtesy of Right Stuff. If reading material is your thing, I would like to point out also on the subject of Erica Friedman that Volume 2 of the Udon Comics release of the Rose of Versailles manga, for which Erica is the editor for, is coming out in a few days. You can pre-order that on Write Stuff for $27.28, that's if you're a God anime member like me, or $29.24 as the regular pre-order price. If you are slightly thirstier than that, I will also point out that the Street Fighter Swimsuit Special Collection art book is also about to ship, and you can pre-order that for way cheaper than it's selling on Amazon. And unlike Amazon, Stuff will properly package their materials so that it will not arrive with the edges of your hardcover book damaged. You would think Amazon, for originally being a bookstore, would know how to ship and package books, but apparently not. And yes, there is one more thing. That right stuff wishes me to inform you of. Because as of 24 hours ago, the pre-order page for Mobile Suit Gundam Narrative is open. The release date is October 6th, 2020. And at this time, I'd like to point out that our Patreon goal of reviewing Gundam Narrative with Mike Tool is now at 90%. That's right. We just need $60 more. And then you will force us to watch and talk about Gundam narrative. Perhaps if I don't mention that our Patreon is patreon.com slash anime world order, perhaps if I don't cash out on any of these benefits, meager as they are, that people won't donate. But I suppose I'm honor bound to say that I would like to welcome aboard the new patrons Devron 121 and Papa Fruitsos as well as C7R, who is donated at the highest possible tier. And so I'd like to remind you that at that highest tier, you can send in a suggestion for a title that you'd like to hear us review on the Anime World Order podcast. I know that Patreon is saying that they are going to charge sales tax now on pledges, but it is my belief that our pledges are such crap that you should not be getting charged sales tax but they did say in some states you might. So I'd be very interested. The next time Patreon bills you guys, if you get charged tax, let us know. Send us an email at animeworldorder at gmail.com with where you're from, what your name is, and what your tier is. So I can look into that. But you may as well go to our website, www.animeworldorder.com and click on the link to write stuff anime to launch their website with our affiliate link such that any purchases you make during this sale or any other sales will get a commission for. They do add up. We did, in fact, just have our hosting renewal bill come through, and we were able to pay that off thanks to your patronage at Right Stuff. So thanks to all for doing that. Kind of a rough year for America as far as 4th of July celebrations, but it's only fitting with today being 4th of July and all that we do a review all about the pursuit of the American dream by talking about banana fish.
1: It's time to talk about Banana Fish, a series that I don't think I ever actually thought would be animated because it went a long time without getting any sort of adaptation.
0: Man, I'm so glad that they finally did. Yeah, I think it was one of those things where they had been asking to make an anime adaptation for years and kept getting turned down time and again. And then eventually the, the author, for whatever reason, relented. Yeah, shockingly, she didn't die. Yeah,
1: I couldn't find any interviews that were easily accessible that specifically talked about that. There
0: was one, and it was from Mm. Anime Next, actually, where they had invited over the staff from MAPA to talk about this. Okay. And it's, again, one of those great things where Anime Next had... These great guests, and if you're not in the room (laughs) at the time, you're like, oh no, I've missed out. But luckily, I
1: think I found a couple of articles that talked about that Anime Next panel or interview, but maybe they didn't cover that part of it, or maybe they weren't people who had asked that question. But I guess we should probably actually talk about what Banana Fish is for people who might not know. Banana Fish is a manga by Akimi Yoshida. It was serialized in Besatsu Shoujo Comic, and it ran for almost 10 years. It started in 85, and it ended in 94. It was, in Japan, a hugely popular series, and it had a big crossover audience, pretty popular with men as well as women. It was also quite popular and well-regarded among LGBTQ readers, although it was funny because knowing like how popular it was, I was reading another interview where Yoshida says like it almost got cancelled twice. Did she give a reason for that? Yes. Yeah, So I think what it was, was that basically it didn't do as well in the serialized release as it did in the Tonkabons later.
0: Mm. Yeah, those weekly popularity polls that the readers fill out. It's like Banana Fish wasn't high up there. And maybe it was because, I can't speculate why, but like if you're a dude in the 80s in Japan, you're going to go and say, yes, I'd like this giant pink shoujo anthology, (laughs) please. Maybe it's a little easier to discreetly pick up the Tonkabon.
1: Yeah, maybe so. Even if you do buy it, are you going to write in? But yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, she was like, oh, yeah, the editor would basically be like, you know, you can stop. So it's so funny. I'm glad that, of course, that never happened and that she got to do all of it all the way. So Banana Fish was a series that actually did come out in the U.S. some time ago in 99. It was uh, released as part of the Pulp magazine. Now, let's talk
0: about this. If we got to explain what Raijin Comics is, we definitely yeah. <laughs> need to explain what Pulp was. Yep, I remember Pulp, yeah.
1: I mean, how long did pulp last, Not
0: very long. I've got uh, about two years worth of, maybe three years worth of essays. I've got uh, a book called Fresh Pulp, Dispatches from the Japanese Pop Culture Front, 1997
1: to 1999. I believe that the banana fish dates that I saw, but I think this was for the volumes was 99 to 2002.
2: Yeah, it was much earlier than that in Pulp. But...
1: Yes, that was probably the collected volumes then.
2: We, we haven't really said what Pulp was.
1: Pulp was a magazine. You know, I think people are probably familiar with the serialized weekly things like Shonen Jump, Misasu Shoujo Comic, these weekly or monthly anthologies that come out in Japan and have a whole bunch of different series. And there have been a few different times where people tried to experiment with something similar over here. I mean, it's only recently that... really with sort of viz's english shonen jump originally in print and shoujo beat which sadly died that we really had something quite similar but in the 90s there were a couple of times that this was attempted and so pulp was one and pulp was focused on printing stuff that was more targeted towards an older audience it was more like a for adults kind of series not necessarily in the sense of porn it was stuff that was for adult audiences it would have violence Right. may have sex but not like porn.
0: Right and so I have the ad copies uh, from the time of how they were promoting this and I think we might get a kick if, oh, we, sure. if we take a look at yes. some of these now. So in 97 the idea was they couldn't say it was adult manga because that was porno so their tagline was it was manga for grown-ups. The editors, a lot of the people who worked at Pulp ended up becoming sort of supreme manga beings or maybe they already were that. So for example <laughs> Jason Thompson was an editor for Viz or he Started off, I think, as like an IT guy or a marketing person because I've, I've got some of the yeah. original. Like, here's pulp coming soon, and here's here's what it writes. This is you can actually go and, and read this online, but it says, "Haven't read pulp? Get ready for the impact of the crime drama strain by Buronson, Sanctuary, and Crying Freeman, and Ryoichi Ikigami, Sanctuary, and Crying Freeman." <laughs> like, okay, um, <laughs> then drugs, gangsters, and homosexuality in New York in Akini Yoshida's <laughs> Shojo manga epic banana fish and shoujo is like underlined and then it sort of goes on the, the way yeah. that it was that they
2: advertised banana fish like i was familiar with the work like from its reputation but mm-hmm. the way it was advertised i thought it was going to be like gay sex wall-to-wall like <laughs> Come splattering the camera all over the place. Like, they emphasize, like.
1: I mean, I don't think they published anything like that, but.
2: <laughs> no, but th- they emphasize the gay sex
0: so sure. much in it.
1: Which is funny because.
0: There is none. Well, we'll get into it.
1: <laughs> well, I won't say there's none, but not not in in the sense
0: that you're thinking of but yes that was the selling point of this and so when you're 17 and you're like all these comics you never heard of and people are like pulp what the fuck is this i'm not reading this shit uh because it's also kind of like hard to come by and whatever i also have the blurb for banana fish but i'm not going to read this until after you give a description because i strongly suspect that carl horn wrote this because he was the initial editor for banana fish over in pulp but there is a We can only hope. There's a a file profile on the author Akimi Yoshida. To give you an idea, like, of who they're writing this for at the time, like, it's, here's how it opens. You'd think the most successful manga artists in Japan millionaires adored by millions would have swelled heads and enjoy touting their own horn but like shy and retiring Ryoichi Ikigami, again 1997 they wrote this and Ikigami's still right <laughs> in Akimi Yoshida is very down to earth nevertheless as the creator of the epic shoujo manga saga Banana Fish she earned a generation of fans both male and female including several of the Japanese women in our office who jumped up and down with excitement when they landed the rights to translate the series into English Shojo manga or Japanese girls comics are best known for their complex characters and intricate, often romantic subplots. But Banana Fish adds plenty of action to the mix. And so goes on with like her career. And then they have a Q&A yeah. a with her. What made you decide to become a pro comic book artist? And she says, I had a part time job at a design studio, but they went bankrupt and I couldn't find another job. <laughs> Amazing. And so what are your current interests and hobbies? What a queen. And she's like gardening and fishing. And then okay. it, I love it. it. If you hadn't become a comic artist, what profession would you have chosen? Graphic designer. And then what message do you have for your American fans? He says, I hope my readers in America enjoy the unique culture of our faraway island nation. A very <laughs> NHK world style of media approach there to the people. You have to yeah. introduce the concept of comic books that aren't like about superheroes and comic books that are right. for girls that aren't about, you know, romance or something like that.
1: Yeah. Pulp, sadly, did not last very long, but they started releasing this. In addition to the release in the magazine, they did release it in collected volumes. I think they got through about seven volumes. It's 19 volumes overall.
0: Yeah, some places I hear seven, some places I hear 11, some places I hear nine, but basically it was not the whole thing that they got through.
1: No. And then eventually Viz decided to go ahead, reprint it. So they reprinted the volumes that had initially come out in the physical profile of their current like shojo releases and with their new like shojo branding and then finished the rest of the series unfortunately because of the time lapse it didn't continue with the same translation and editing team I wish that it had but unfortunately it got reassigned although certainly I wouldn't say that there was huge noticeable dip in quality or anything i I don't want to give that impression eventually all 19 volumes did come out here there are about five prequel or sequel or spin-off pieces for some reason and only two of them are included in the last volume of the American release. Angel Eyes, which is a prequel story about how two of the characters, Ash and Shorter, met and Garden of Light, which is a follow-up that happens about like 10 years or so after the events of the manga. I don't know why the other ones were not included. I didn't find anything that talked about that specifically. I,
0: before we get too into it, I'm just, I'm laughing to myself because I'm reading more of this Jason Thompson ad copy here, and I just oh. have to read the rest <laughs> of this to give people an idea of when pulp first launched what they contended with i'm just gonna read this verbatim more than martial artists and giant robots pulp is the only anthology of the diverse erotic alternative real manga from japan's top manga magazines for a general adult audience so we gotta just parse this because again in the late mm-hmm. '90s, the stereotype of manga—it's it's all giant robots and martial arts. Yeah, or weird porn. This is the manga magazine for grown-ups. Uh, they're advertising the concept of their new website now with its own domain name. To give you an idea of uh, uh, the, the time.
1: I can hear the awful modem screech. Right.
0: Provides the latest news, information, and online manga samples. You'll find more manga for grown-ups than ever before. Updated monthly, the site contains downloadable manga sections from every story in every issue, giving you a sample of each issue. Some downloads are strictly for ages 18 and older. Previews of upcoming Saucy. issues show you what to expect before it hits the stands and an image gallery of images from your favorite series provides fabulous color art and illustrations you won't find in the print magazine plus sign up for our online polls and contests send us email at pulp at jpop.com because you know you got a brand jpop each issue Mm -hmm. of pulp is 128 pages long and retails for only $5.95 in the US and $8 in Canada with four columns and six stunning stories plus giveaways and letters every month pulp from viz comics is the number one manga magazine for japanese culture aficionados and all kinds of comics reading adults so that's the state of releasing this stuff in 1997 1998 a very different world let's just say
1: yeah oh yeah absolutely so this manga came out in 85, ended in 94, but it wasn't animated until relatively recently, although it's a couple years ago at this point, in 2018, which was apparently the 40th anniversary of Yoshida's career as a manga artist. And so there was some other stuff, I think, that was being done at the same time. They announced that there was going to be an anime production done by MAPA. So it ran for 24 episodes. It was aired on the No Otomana block, which we've talked about before in, in other episodes. The director for it is Hiroko Utsumi, who really the biggest thing that she's known for is for doing free. She did unit and episode direction and on some other things, but free with like, her big directorial. Character designs were done by Akemi Hayashi, who's worked on a bunch of stuff, including Dokusei. They headlined this project. MAPPA, we've talked about them before, just always stellar work. And so I was really happy with this. We waited so long. One of the
0: things that Hiroko Utsumi had said, uh, this was also during the Anime Next panel, is that Mm -hmm. she said, man, I really wanted 39 episodes for this. And they said, you don't get 39, you get 24 And so now you got to say, man, I got 19 some volumes of manga. Now I got to figure out what am I going to focus on? He said, okay, well, what I'm going to focus on is the main part of the story, but also like some changes got to get made. So what is, I guess, the main general premise of this thing?
1: We'll talk a little bit about some of the changes, but in general, Banana Fish is meant to be a modern story. And so when the manga came out in the 80s, it was set present day. So it was set in 84 Eighty-five. In the anime version, they basically decided we're going to also make it a modern story and have it happen in present day, which is you know 2018 or whatever. Right. Banana Fish is ultimately kind of a gang-like crime thriller but also has like a really heavy focus on the relationship between the two main characters although it's not a romance specifically so the opening of the story happens originally in vietnam and in the remake in the middle east so these soldiers are hanging out and one of the members of their unit comes back and is apparently kind of, like, not well, and he freaks out and ends up shooting some of the other members of his unit and gets shot in return. He says weird stuff talking about banana fish. Then it cuts forward a few years, and the main character is Ash Lynx, who's a teenager, and he basically runs a street gang in New York City, and he has this long-standing relationship with... This guy, Papadino, who's like one of the dons of the New York mafia.
0: To be specific, he is part of the Corsican mob, which is part of the French mob. uh, For people who don't know where Corsica is, it's an island near France, kind of like how uh, Sicily is sort of near Italy. His name, uh, what, Dino Golzina? Yeah. Sounds like it'd be Italian, but it's actually more like a Belgianish sort of name. So some of the characters, they'll refer to him as the, you know, the monsieur or the monsieur right. uh, because uh, of that. Luckily, I mean, or maybe unluckily, there's no dub of Banana Fish just yet. And so, you know, maybe they would hire someone with an outrageous accent or a Texan <laughs> to do an outrageous accent. For this guy.
1: Yes, he's basically this mafia, Don, and he runs, of course, a lot of the organized crime in the area. And so you have this sort of dual level you have the kind of organized established mafia, and then you have the street gangs. And in some cases, the street gangs have some connections to the more organized mafia, but not always. And this is something that I
0: thought was particularly interesting about Banana Fish, because usually when you see a story, uh, like a crime story, since I am officially old enough to be an old man dad, I can say I've grown into my interest (laughs) of being into gangster and crime drama sort of stories. And typically, stories about street crime are distinct from stories about organized crime, or what I call gangster works.
1: And in the most case, those things are fairly separate. I mean, most of the time, those are two different sets of people and they don't always work together.
0: And so in this case, it is an interesting story because, and and I'll go into this as we get through some of the discussion, but it embodies not just the characteristics of the gangster tale, like the tropes and archetypes and things like that, but also Mm -hmm. that of the hood, you know, sort of criminal as it were.
1: Yeah. Yeah papadino is basically adopted ash but also basically really just obtained him as a child prostitute and used him as part of a ring of other child prostitutes but became obsessed with him and decided that he sees potential in him right and is gonna like try and like turn him into the next leader of the union Corsair.
2: i'm sure that the fact that he was handsome gorgeous blonde blue-eyed young kid only had 40 percent. well sure
0: but that's like the the sort of the shoujo aspect of it because, you know, maybe historically right. you probably wouldn't get a, a former prostitute to be a mob leader or even a gang leader because everyone would be like, oh, you were subject to all this stuff and therefore you wouldn't get respect. Yeah. But this is shojo manga. We just go with it.
1: Well, and there are places where they talk about that I mean there's places later on when Ash says like even as much as people sort of understand that he's tough and that he's smart you know even he says like people basically didn't think that I had any brains in my head you know I was just there to suck people's dicks right and so they underestimate you
0: right because as
1: it turns out Ash
0: happens to be uh, a Superman as far as like what he's good at he's like really smart really good looking really knowledgeable about many things and all that Mm -hmm. kind of actually ties into the traditional portrayal of the gangster as protagonist. Right. There was, and this is to go way back just because this does influence Banana Fish in a roundabout way. I don't know how familiar... Yoshida was with the old gangster sort of movies. I'm sure she had seen plenty of like Yakuza movies. Like we were talking about Toei, you know, the Mm -hmm. intro segment. Toei animation is just one branch of the empire because Toei themselves made a whole bunch of movies. And, you know, in one year alone, I think they made something like 30 some movies about the Yakuza. Back when that was considered trendy, and surely she would yeah. have seen these things the very least. Those movies, in turn, are influenced by our American gangster movies of like the mm-hmm. '30s,
1: right? You're like prohibition. Yeah, well, actually, Al Capone.
0: Yes, exactly that that time frame. I'm not gonna read this whole thing. You can actually look this up yourself. It's all online. But in 1948, there was a film scholar a guy named Robert Warshow, and he wrote a short essay. It was called "The Gangster Is Tragic Hero," and it was sort of a look at the classic classic 1930s movie approach to gangster movies, because obviously it's 1948. There's no Sopranos or Godfather or Goodfellas and stuff like that. It's only a few pages long. You can read it online, but basically he talks about a lot of the tropes and conventions that effectively define who Ash is in this story. I'll read maybe like the single most famous line in the piece. I'll read it right here. The gangster is the man of the city. For the gangster, there is only the city. He must inhabit it to personify it. Because Ash is effectively the personification of your 1985 originally New York City, not just at the street level, but also at the upper level. Because when you tell a gangster crime story, the mobster of the piece is defined by the modern world. That's part of why Banana Fish was set when it was when she wrote it, and why the anime is set when it is when they made it. The gangster becomes who they are by taking control of a portion of the city, occupied by the shadows, which, you know, at the start of the story, Ash is that already. He is a street gang leader, which is where they make their money. And in doing so they also reap the rewards of going to the most expensive restaurants the most exclusive nightclubs and so unlike everybody else only the gangster can inhabit both high society and the underworld simultaneously and so like you said Clarissa Ash is trained in, and literally groomed by this guy Dino not just yeah. in how to be a, a gangster and how to you know perform you know depraved sex acts but also how to identify the vintage and year of the most exclusive wine the types they openly make like a few cases of a year cost tens of thousands of dollars. That is part of who the gangster must be in these sort of stories.
1: Right. But what's interesting, too, is that Ash repeatedly sort of rejects that. I think because he associates that so much with Goldine, and that's one thing that happens over the course of it, is that Ash kind of continuously like says, I don't want that. I don't care about having these expensive suits. I don't care about this level of power. It's all bullshit, and consciously rejects it, I think, to a greater degree than a lot of of those other other gangster Correct. stories. And so I think that also comes into sort of how the relationship between him and the other main character plays out. But so Ash is this gang leader and near the beginning of the story he runs into a guy who is being hunted down and basically executed by some folks sent by Papadino and the guy runs into him he's already like dying and he gives him something and he also mentions this banana fish. The other main character is this guy Eiji who is a couple years older, he's 19, he's from Japan he comes to New York City with a photographer, Shinichi Ibe. Eiji was an athlete. He was a pole vaulter, and Ibe says that he brings him with him to New York because ag has been kind of dealing with like a depressive funk and he wants to help him sort of snap out of it. So Ag comes to New York with him as his photographer's assistant and they're going to go do a story and do some photo shoots and stuff. This is also like a
0: flight of fancy for the update because you need a <laughs> photographer's <laughs> yeah. assistant. Well, yeah, maybe in 85 when you right. have to develop film and like carry around like all this stuff. But like, would you really need a, an assistant now in this age? Well, whatever, just go with it
1: (laughs) yeah and so they're gonna like basically take some photos of some of these like teen gang members and they're like okay like we'll go here and this is how ag and ash meet and it's very much this sort of these are people from two completely different worlds You have Eiji, who's very sheltered from Japan, which is people don't have guns there really at all. He doesn't have any exposure to violence. And Ash, who is this kid who's grown up on the streets, who's deeply involved in this violent world of street gangs as well as the mafia. They're just completely different, but they end up forging a connection. While Eiji is there, they basically are at like a bar where these gang members are hanging out. And a bunch of other guys from a rival group come in and bust in the place. And they grab Ash and another kid called Skipper and they grab Ag as well. And the three of them get dragged off. Ash and Ag kind of end up like sort of bonding in the process of like getting out of this situation. And this is how Ag sort of gets dragged into all of this stuff that's happening.
0: Yeah, I would say there are two sort of key archetypes that are in existence here as far as like how it pertains to like the traditional sort of gangster story. So there's mm-hmm. the best friend character. Best friend. Friend is right. usually someone who's right alongside the gangster on their journey. Usually like their right-hand pal for life, like a younger, older brother ish sort of character to the main character.
1: And Banana Fish, yeah, that's a guy right. named Shorter Wong exactly. who we also meet at the beginning. He's a member of the Chinese gangs. He's from Chinatown, but he and Ash are close friends. One of the prequel things explains that they met basically when Ash was in Juvie. Yeah,
0: the best friend character is usually like less ambitious or more humane, and they're so that usually means there's always a tipping point moment in the story where the gangster loses their best friend in some way, and in so doing, it's usually like a sign of point of no return or a, a tipping point. Mm-hmm. The circumstance for how it happens is actually, it's partially because of the Hayes Code in 1930 that was America's motion picture production code which said what you couldn't, couldn't do in film. And so sometimes the best friend would betray them over love or money or sometimes something would happen where they would find themselves at opposite ends. And then sometimes the best friend would take a redemptive path that would say like, oh, the gangster could have followed this if he chose not to. But A. G. is not actually, from an archetype perspective, the best friend of the gangster story, Shorter Wong is that. Rather, A. G. has a very interesting archetype that he fills.
1: I mean, he is basically the love interest.
0: That's right. He's the Molly's the love interest because, yeah, they may swear up and down at, oh, you know, they're just very good friends. But I think the reason that fans thematically understand this is that the Molly, the mall character exists typically as a status symbol to mark how powerful, how successful a gangster is. And usually, historically, that character is someone who comes from upstanding society or high society Mm -hmm. and is seduced or brought into the gangster's lifestyle due to either the power or the money or, in this case, the personal magnetism of the gangster. Uh, Historically, they weren't that active in driving the main plot. They were sort of there to serve as confidence or to be someone who is... Put in peril, so the gangster can go rescue them. In many ways, that's what Ag is, and people maybe they don't know the archetype, right. but they intuitively feel it.
1: Well, and it's funny because there are interviews where Yoshida actually talks about when she was initially looking at the story, she initially was going to make Ag a girl, and then she basically decided not to go forward with that because, on one hand, it felt a little reductive to just have like a female character who was there to like be rescued all the time and be like freaking out about stuff, but also because, I mean, basically what she actually said was like if You know, she had written Asia as a girl. The romance would have been like that's the way it has to happen. And I think because of those archetypes, Mm,
0: absolutely. And so, I mean, you see this archetype show up again outside of strictly gangster type things. So, for example, into superhero Superhero movie stuff, obviously, yeah, action action movies. This has sort of come up. You know, obviously, the Joker is big, and so Harley Quinn is like the mall for him. Mm -hmm. She was a upstanding, you know, psychiatrist, and then she got uh, drawn in, you know, sort of brought into that dark world. World as a result. And so AG is the Japanese readership sort of stand ish character of like wow this is like an ordinary student You know, but what if you were brought into, like, this crazy world over across the sea, you know, where all this insanity goes on? He gets to talk to, like, Ash about
2: Japanese things, and he gets to be like, wow, you can't do this in Japan, or...
0: Before we go on, I want to read the recap of original Viz release of Pulp. I think this probably would have appeared in the issue, like, as uh, magazine chapters were coming out. I'm pretty sure Carl Horn wrote this. I'm just going to read this. (laughs) The story thus far. It starts in New York City. Not today's NYC of a Disney store in Times Square and courtesy announcements and every hack, but the city at the height of its 1980s crime wave. Aslan Reese came here as a little boy on the run from an idyllic Cape Cod childhood. An older brother Griffin who returned from Vietnam as a vegetable and a father Jim who stood by and let it happen when a local predator molested Aslan, only advising his youngest son to make sure he got some money out of it. Mafioso Papadino Golzine. They took Aslan in, using him first for sex, then as an enforcer. Aslan became known on the streets. As Ash links and somehow kept his sense of self, going independent as a teenager and forming a gang feared for Ash's deadly aim centered around his uncanny charisma. But when Papa Dino's rivals start turning up in the morgue as violent suicides, the uneasy peace between Ash and Dino is finished. The suicides are tied to banana fish. It was the sit You know, <laughs> this is like it just sort of goes on. Yeah, yeah. It's like, do you think this was Carl? Or do you think this was Patrick Macias?
1: Oh, man. That sounds
0: like Patrick to me. It could have been Patrick. I think one of them still listens to us. After so, a uh... failed attempt <laughs> to kill Golzina, Ash is on the lam with his friends, Chinese gang member Shorter, cute Japanese reporter Eiji, his <laughs> worrywart boss, eBay, and Griffeld's old army buddy, journalist Max Lobo. <laughs>
1: We didn't actually get to Max. So yeah, they also end up getting pulled together with Max Lobo, who's a journalist, because Max has also been looking into Banana Fish because, as it said in the recap, the soldier in the beginning was Ash's brother, Griffin. And so Max was in that unit. They kind of come together through the connection of Banana Fish. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the whole story from there is, what is Banana Fish? Right? And trying to figure out what exactly is this? Who is banana fish? What is banana fish? And then also Ash basically wanting to get revenge on Dino. Other people basically get involved either through the connection of Banana Fish or through other aspects of the criminal syndicates. So Shorter, as I mentioned, is from the Chinese gangs. And so in addition to the Chinese street gangs, there's also involvement from the Chinese like organized crime, both through that and as well as like them having rivalries directly with Dino Colcine.
0: Now, one thing about the script to Banana Fish that caught me as interesting is that most of the time, when they refer to the organized crime level, every once in a while they'll say the mafia, but usually they'll say the syndicate. And there's actually a bit of a background of why that yeah. is.
1: In the manga, they usually say the union course. Uh,
0: and so, basically, this is an interesting story. It goes back several decades, and we can maybe talk about this a little more. But way back, like I'm talking before Seduction of the Innocent came out with comic books, and talked about like how comic books were corrupting America's youth. They There was this book called Our Movie Made Children, and it was all about the threat that gangster movies pose to children. And, uh, you know, Little Caesar, not the pizza place, but the uh, 1930 movie, which is sort of like one of the first of like the classic gangster movies is saying this. Movie inspired three murders. And incidentally, it's often crime gangster movies that get pointed to as like inspiring the killings, Reservoir Dogs or, you know, Natural Born Killers Mm -hmm. because the Columbine Killers, they codenamed their massacre after that. But when the original Godfather movie was going to come out, it came under heavy scrutiny because the Italian American Civil Rights League protested and they said, we demand that you remove all verbal utterances of the words mafia and Cosa Nostra from the picture because, oh, it's going to portray all Italian Americans as gangsters. And the irony of this is that the Italian American Civil Rights League was in fact run by the head of one of New York's crime families, (laughs) who in turn was shot dead in the head, shot in 1971 by other mafiosos unhappy at the attention he was drawing from all his uh, crusading
1: Oh, right. Yeah.
0: And of course, the old gangster movies back in the day never mentioned the mafia by name at all because uh, J. Edgar Hoover denied that the Cosa Nostra even existed until 1957 when the FBI kind of stumbled into an underworld conference of about 60 mobsters in New York and then they couldn't really cover it up anymore. But that's why it became commonplace.
1: They actually stopped also having those kind of meetings (laughs) (laughs) because like they got so many guys got busted.
0: Right. And that's why it became commonplace to refer instead to quote the syndicate or the organization. And Mm. so, there are two side effects of this. As far as Banana Fish goes, one of the side effects is that stories about gangsters make it seem like it's a really small amount of people responsible for not only planning, but executing the criminal activity in the city. And so the individualization of the gangster, it gives this idea that, well, I just got to get to that motherfucker and take him out and then order will be restored, right? Like just got to get Dino. In reality, you know, corruption may be more systemic and institutionalized, but in terms of narrative crime dramas, like corruption is often portrayed as like one person's evil soul. Like Banana Fish is like, there's like one dirty cop or one evil politician or something like that, as opposed to like the whole thing is completely yeah. wrecked.
1: And the other thing, there's more than yeah, one, yeah, maybe there's two or three,
0: uh, but you but know yeah. what I mean?
1: Yeah, and the military too.
0: Yeah, a couple.
1: And the other thing
0: I think as far as establishing these sort of tropes of banana fish was in the 1940s, there was the Murder, Inc. trials. I'm not talking about the Def Jam record label. I'm talking about that (laughs) there was uh, exposure at the national level of a company of assassins who were the enforcers for the various mobs, like the Jewish mob, the Italian mob, etc. And I think they said they carried out something like 400 or 1,000 hits on people. They'd go to some small town, rub out the target, leave without a trace. And then in the 50s, there was something called the Kevolver hearings. I think I mispronounced that, but basically that is what revealed the existence of organized crime to national television viewers. Cause again, TV was this new thing, huge viewership ratings. I'm talking about back when most people didn't have TVs, huge crowds of people would form outside of TV stores to watch 600 some mobsters, crooked cops, etc., yeah. getting grilled by Senate inquiries. And that's when you really started to see stories in film and eventually TV about the, these massive organizations that are, are running things. And so that's like the world of right. the chase that's happening in Banana Fish of, what well, we got to find this out and find out who's the head of it and who's behind that person and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. It ties back to that stuff.
1: It's interesting too, because I was thinking, you mentioned Seduction of the Innocent and then stuff about looking up to gangsters, because one of the things with some of the early Batman and Superman comics was like, part of the thing was that there had been this sort of, idolization of gangsters like dillinger and so part of the narrative with the early batman and superman comics was actually like kind of pushing against that but yeah absolutely The thing about Banana Fish is so plot-wise, it's this gangster story and it's there's a whole huge conspiracy and involving all these different groups of people and it does reach into police force and the government, but also like on an emotional level, it's fundamentally a story about trauma and sort of the cycle of violence. And you know, we mentioned Ash being like a child prostitute and the summary that you mentioned talks about the fact that initially Ash was molested as a child as age seven by a guy in his town. I think it was the Little League coach. And so it talks about how the experience of trauma affects people and how people sort of get trapped in certain cycles. There's a quote, it's in the anime as well, but I I have it from volume nine of the manga that says, how do you expect someone who started being sexually abused at the age of eight, for God's sakes, to have any respect for authority? There's a fine line between offender and victim. It's hard to know when to draw it. And that's one of the things that comes up, you know, a lot is that certainly it's not a sole explanation for criminal behavior, but there's a ton of scholarship and research and psychology behind the way that people who are victimized, who experience trauma and who are placed in situations where they maybe don't have other ways to cope with it or other ways to get out of it, this feeds this whole cycle of violence. We're seeing it now in the conversations about police defunding, which is like addressing it through other means like education programs, social services. Like
0: Right, where like the only tool they've been given is, is violence because justice has evaded yeah. them. Like in the case of, of Ash, you know, as we get to learn his story, we find out like, oh, well, he tried to do the right thing and he was punished for doing the right thing. No yeah. one would help him. And eventually he defended himself or stood up for himself and was punished for doing this. And that just sort of set him on this path that, mm-hmm. you know, okay, well, where's the failure take place here? Was it the failure of Ash in like not doing whatever? It's like, no, what else could he have done? So that's sort of what makes him a tragic figure. Right, he's a very sad,
2: kind of broken character with not a lot of hope for repair, let's say.
1: Yeah, and that's the other big thing about it is the question of sort of like, is Ash somebody who's already basically destined to be in the spot where he's at? To what extent can somebody who's had this kind of past, who's been in this kind of situation, have something different?
0: And then that's where Ag kind of comes into play as the best friend offering right. the potential redemptive path because there is a point in the story where Ag says, you know what? You can get away from this and not have to do any of this stuff anymore. And Ash, when presented with that option, rejects that option because of two reasons. One, because Yoshida would be like, well, if I move the story to here, what would he have to do? But right. the other reason ties into the thematic mythological perspective of the gangster. There is often a scene mm-hmm. where where... where the gangster finds themselves maybe on the run and removed from that environment that city that makes them the person that they are and in these environments the gangster is incapacitated to be removed from their city is uh, a fate worse than death it's better to die in the street than live out in the suburbs like you know in the end of like Goodfellas or whatever (laughs) it's like oh I gotta live a normal life like this is a fate worse than death basically sort of thing that I gotta be normal and so Ash when given the redemptive path
1: and it's sad because Ash. Ash wants that. I mean, Ash explicitly says, I wanted a normal right. life.
0: Right, but he just can't... He can't fathom what, it. What is it? He can't imagine... He him, can't
1: have he it. He just
2: can't have it and can't yeah. imagine himself there.
1: Yeah, I mean, even the supporting characters who are cops in the story, I mean, we do see the fact that there's Golzine and these people have their hands in with the cops and that the cops are dirty, but the ones that maybe you want to do something, one of the constant things is like, well, their hands are tied, Like, right? We don't have proof of the stuff that Golzine is doing, so we can't actually arrest him. So, like, they know the situation that Ash is in, but they don't really have any power to do anything. Banana Fish comes from, and they mentioned this in the story, but it comes from a J.D. Salinger short story called A Perfect Day for Banana Fish. And that story in itself is about basically post-traumatic stress, about the lasting trauma of going to the war and coming back and not really being able to, to fit
2: to, in anywhere
1: to have a clean life.
2: Yeah, there seems like there's a lot of J.D. Salinger influence just in general in the- this work in terms of like a character who is sort of so broken that them adjusting to like not being a person that hurts society just they just can't fathom that like what else could they do Mm. i mean i mentioned when we were watching it that i was like man this feels quite a bit like catcher in the rye and then i was
0: reminded the last episode is titled catcher in the rye or something like that yeah
1: right probably from now on we're gonna talk about spoilers even more so than we have so
0: yeah before we give the official cut we will point out that if you want to watch Banana Fish based on what we've been talking about.
1: It is on Amazon Prime.
0: Their player is not the greatest, but it is the only place that currently Banana Fish is streaming. But you can also purchase it digitally, I think. Yeah, I I, I, I can't remember if that's still the case or not. I know it's just the main place we watched was Amazon Prime. And so it's kind of got like closed caption-ish style subtitle presentation. But yeah, it is there. Most people, you have to have Prime to watch it. legally anyway, but a lot of people seemed like they did see this and normally when something's on Amazon Prime kind of goes overlooked and sometimes when I look up a banana fish, there's like a weird schism of like a a bunch of fan activity and then a bunch of people asking why is nobody talking about banana fish? And I think part of that is because just it wasn't on Crunchyroll or Funimation and certainly with its content probably would be too hard to sell for Adult Swim just because it's not really the violence. It's not a stoner comedy. But but even the (laughs) anime that they pick, yeah. Yes, they'll have violence, but like they usually won't talk about child molestation and stuff like that. And you can't right, really get that on usually.
1: TV. Yeah, and that was one of the things that made it really notable in Japan is that it dealt with sexual assault and the trauma surrounding it in a much more detailed and serious way than you would generally see. Especially even though it's not like a BL title, that relationship it is very much about the fact that Ash and A.G. love one another, especially then also in stories that are about gay men or at least, you know, are adjacent to that, like it's not something you usually see, or if it is, it's kind of like a sort of the weird romance novel fetishization version.
0: Yeah, I think there's two aspects to that. I think part of it is just the only, for decades, the only thing anyone knew about Banana Fish was gay, 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 gay. not no Kitaro, but just do this <laughs> being rude, the comic, check it out, be gay to crimes, literally, and that's not actually, at least that's not explicitly what the original thing is written about. But it does mean that when people who see that as the ad copy or the pitch for it or the reputation go and watch the show, a lot of them you'll see like they object. It's like, wow, everyone who's explicitly gay in this series is a predator, is a horrible rapist. Yeah.
1: And I think that's the unfortunate thing about not having Ash and Ag. I mean, they clearly love one another, but I think that is the downside of not having it be an overtly romantic or sexual relationship and that it does sort of relegate all of the male male sex to predatory, predatory it's, a, it's a
0: non-consensual like it's, rapist sort of activity again child pornographers of you know they all want young boys sort of stuff like that those are the ones that you see and there's not really like air quotes the uh, the good example Or the positive example might be a better way to phrase that. But I think that is one of those things where maybe there's like a disconnect between fan base and author or fan base and publisher. Though I will point out that as we were watching this, I would read the manga right afterwards or sometimes have it side by side Mm -hmm. as I was looking at it. And one of the most notable changes aside from the modernization is there is a scene and we we already passed our, our spoiler warning mark so I can say this. There's a scene where Ash has to go to prison to meet Max Lobo, because Max is currently in jail. Yes. He needs to get a message out and so his scheme to do this is he needs to get into the infirmary and so the way that he does this is that he, quote, permits to be gang raped and then gets sent to the yeah. infirmary where he then uh, asks for some medication in the form of a capsule which he conceals through the power of his sleight of tongue, empties the capsule, puts a message in there and so when he goes to see A G in the visitation, he kisses him and in the manga, this is one panel. In the anime this is like a lingering thing and they close up and then show them slip <laughs> the tongue to ag because you can tell like all yes. the key animators all the women who had to like do like the cuts of these like this is their dream to get their banana fish <laughs> Super (laughs) moment in there. But don't worry. He's not gay. He's just making everyone think that so that he can get the message. It's like, all right, whatever. That's where, (laughs) you know, you put your Tom Hardy Mad Max. That's bait picture up there. But again, I think that the people working on this, like when in 97, they said, hey, the Japanese ladies in the office in America were really excited that they're going to work on Banana Fish. Similarly, Mapa, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. really excited that they're going to work on Banana Fish for Yeah, that well, I mean, that was what I thought was surprising just because I came
2: from that ad copy and there is one or two kisses between them and all other, like, gay sex is either stuff that someone is watching that you just see, like, the shadows of on their face or right. something that they talk about has happened in the past. It's just this undertone, which is, it's just weird when you think about, like, how much that was emphasized in the original yeah, a way to sell it.
1: So I did think it was interesting reading bits and pieces of translated interviews with Yoshida that I was able to find. There was an interview in year two thousand in Queer Japan between her and a gay author of Shimi Noriaki. Yoshida says. The main reason I came to want to draw stories like this was because back in high school I saw a revival screening of Midnight Cowboy starring Dustin Hoffman. The impact of that movie was astounding. In the same way that a baby chick thinks that the first thing it sees is its mother, I think I now have the tendency to keep trying to replicate that pattern. That movie was really shocking, I can't forget it even now. And Fushimi says Midnight Cowboy is less aesthetic and more dirty. It's a story about the bond between two not very beautiful men, isn't it? It's not exactly a clear-cut homosexual love either. Yoshida, that's right, but they had a connection that felt like without each each other, they would drown, and their souls would die. Right? It just so happened that they were guys, so I get the feeling that the imprinting has caused me to keep replicating that sort of relationship between men whenever I draw as well. If that had been a movie about two women, maybe I would have been drawing about women instead. I don't know. And so I thought the influence of Midnight Cowboy was really interesting, and it is like that's another movie in the, about this very deep, very close relationship, but it's not like an overtly romantic or sexual relationship between the two main characters.
2: Also about very very broken people in Midnight Cowboy. Well, yeah. Tremendously yeah. like beyond repair sort of people as well. That's mm-hmm. it's very interesting and I see now the parallels There is something kind of bigger I want to bring up, but I want you to maybe get to that. Go ahead, Daryl. I'm sorry. So
0: basically, that whole sort of dynamic is actually present even in the the old gangster movies as far as like the relationship between the gangster and the best friend character. A lot of times it will imply like, you know, if you go back to to Little Caesar in 1930, that would imply that best friend relationship kind of go up a little beyond just that, but you're not gonna based on the, the time, you know, you can't really show or really like do anything yeah. with that sort of thing, but that has always been there in these sorts of stories. Yeah. You couldn't just cut to them like practicing wrestling. Well, like, well, the way you, you could, know, even, <laughs> even you back then, that. like the the way that they would do those would be like these quote exercise videos of like, you know, guys right. like really intensely <laughs> right. spotting one another doing sit-ups or something like that because, you know, yes. they couldn't really yeah. channel the outlet for this sort of stuff without like being brought in. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, so many of those... I think anytime you have those like really intense relationships between characters of the same sex, is like, you're going to have that ability to like read into it. I was thinking of the predominance of like queer readings of like, the outsiders, and also that S.E. Hinton gets really mad about it.
0: Always a plus. Hmm.
1: Yes. <laughs> so I think probably to have something a little bit lighter as a transition before we talk a little bit more about the changes between the manga version and the anime version, there's an interview with Yoshida from 1990 in Comic Box where she talks about that she thought about making it like a B-grade action movie and she talks about the different actors and such that she used as templates for the characters so I'm sending you a link. All right. I think everybody knows like or a lot of people know about Ash as River Phoenix although technically he wasn't River Phoenix at first he was initially based off of a tennis player but eventually he sort of morphed into River Phoenix. You know I think the guy for AJ is not that well known outside of, of Japan is uh no, Hironobu Nomura. I thought it was interesting that apparently Frederick Arthur is Ding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at these guys here. And Max is Harrison yeah, Max Ford. Max Lobo is Harrison yeah. Ford.
0: Um, but yeah, Arthur is, we haven't really talked about him, but basically he's sort of the guy who-
1: Has it in for Ash.
0: Yeah, he's got the go 13 speech. Like go 13, there's always like some point where someone just stands by and just gives a speech in awe and reverence. Like he certainly is the greatest, isn't he? And like Arthur is like, Ash is the greatest <laughs> marksman and the best gang leader and all that. Yeah. and I'll never forgive him for the time he cut my damn fingers off and I got him reattached. I can't hold a gun anymore. I'm going to get you, Ashling, someday. That's Arthur. He's sort of like this rival.
1: I totally only want to stab him. It's like Sting
0: in Dune. Exactly. Yes. Who is... Uh, maybe Yoshiki Tomino again. is shorter? No, uh... I was going to ask, like, who is shorter
2: here? Because and the
1: shorter long is, of course, the the very important thing is that he is Sun Plaza Nakano Kun.
2: Huh? Because he's he's
1: that guy. I think is what they based um, the radio host in Yakuza Dolce. uh Yes. Okay. I believe Dolce is patterned. I after. thought they
0: actually got the real guy for that, but I can't remember. Oh, maybe. Dolce Kamiya, but
2: yeah, he's very obviously he's very different because you'll get to that, I'm sure. The differences in the manga yes. and the anime. But yeah, this is. And I was laughing, see. Uh,
1: Gerald, because you were talking about one of the cops. and You were talking about the guy from what was it NYPD Blue? Yeah, Dennis right. Franz. But no, he's he's Danny DeVito. Because
0: <laughs> Dennis Franz was not a thing in '85 particularly no, Danny DeVito was yeah. and I, I see that second page. That's if awesome. If only the chief that's, of police uh, dropped his monster condom for his Magnum dong <laughs>
2: <laughs> No that's uh this is it's really interesting to see these influences and where they come from and obviously they are tied to this era of that actor as yes. well.
1: And I would not have thought that Charlie was William Catt.
2: Yeah, like seeing this, uh, this Danny DeVito is fascinating. I'm, I'm trying to think of yeah. like the stuff Danny DeVito was in at the time. Taxi? If that had any influence. <laughs> well, Taxi was like, what, late 70s, like 81 or something? And, uh, yeah. and it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. huh? Because he was kind of a bad guy, then he's still a not a bad person right. but like always plays like shitty dudes
1: yeah you know it's interesting with the River Phoenix thing I mean I guess people probably don't know who River Phoenix is anymore but River Phoenix was an actor who was quite popular in the 80s and he died tragically yeah. um, he was very young so Yoshida talks about in another interview that she had always intended to have Ash die because she was thinking about like Ashton no Joe and she says I always worry about how to deal with my protagonists who are criminals obviously they're hurt by killing people but still they kill because of otherwise they'd be killed but they're still murderers I feel giving a proper ending to people like that is very difficult and in the end of Banana Fish I decided that he shouldn't survive but I only became conflicted about whether Ash would die or not quite late on in the serialization when River Phoenix died I began thinking this wasn't a joke but my original theme for this story was that there's something fascinating about people who die young like how this person lived his full life in 17 years rather than 70 years so I thought maybe I shouldn't go there but when it comes down to it Ash is a killer and so I thought it was interesting that River Phoenix like died while she was writing this series and that was like and that in
0: turn affected the direction the story went
1: well I mean she thought about changing it she decided not to but it definitely made her consider like whether or not she should change and it's
0: certainly thematically appropriate One of those things that kind of happened, you know, with those gangster movies that people were saying like, oh, you're glorifying this horrible behavior. It usually doesn't end well. It usually doesn't end well. And the reason is because part of it was to assuage like these moral panics, like the movie Scarface. I'm not talking about the Al Pacino Scarface. I'm talking about the original Scarface movie, the Pacino movies, a the remake. One. Yeah. So that movie yeah, yeah. was held up for two years because they had to add new scenes and like run it through the board and they tacked on a sort of justice is served ending and then at the beginning they'd put like a little public service disclaimer at the front of it and which also in Little Caesar has that same thing too. And then Fred the Hammer Williamson back in the black exploitation era decades after that, he made a movie called Black Caesar. Of course, if you know anything about Fred Williamson's movies, he always famously insists like, well, I, I went in every fight. I don't die at the end. I get the girl if I want her. Well, in Black Caesar, he basically ends up dying a sort of ignoble death in the original cut of the movie, which, you know, they, they changed and now they've since restored. In that movie, it was like he goes and he gets his revenge and he does all like the big dramatic stuff, but he sustains a wound. And then as he's like walking to get away, he gets basically mugged by some random street kids or something like that. And that's implied that he, he's killed by that in that way. That's actually the standard sort of death of the gangster in these sort of things. Like, just as the city defines the gangster, it is typical in the gangster story that the circumstances of their death is that they die in a somewhat public way, on a somewhat ignoble right. way. Almost like it's a retribution, Kokimi like is saying in her interview, like, you got to die in the place where you brought so much chaos down upon everyone. When you go down heroically and grandiose, Bonnie and Clyde or, you know, Al Pacino's Scarface, people tend to get the wrong impression. If you want to talk about a movie that people get the wrong impression of, it's Al Pacino's Scarface, where they're like, wow, this guy was great. I want to be just like Scarface. And he went out like a chant, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. In the modern thematic way of it, a lot of times it's like, well, you have to show that crime doesn't pay, or you have to say that... Well, let's... Yeah, go ahead, Gerald. I mean, let's go to the most modern telling of that.
2: Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad is certainly um, it. The Sopranos yep. is it. Breaking Bad ended exactly the way. And these sorts of movies, there's only two ways that a character can ever get out of this. It's the Goodfellows way or the Scarface way.
0: Well, the Goodfellas way and- is interesting because in the mythology of the gangster and the mythology of the mobsters, the informant... Is the lowest form of human life the rat? Uh, mm-hmm. They're down on the ground. They they don't you know serve any purpose. But in movies, in cinema, the canary, as it were, become more sympathetic. Why? In the 1950s, there was the House Un-American Activities Committee about rooting out the red menace, the red scare of the the, the communists. And actors and directors themselves became the informers, ratting out friends and colleagues they suspected of being commie sympathizers. And so from that point on, things like On the Waterfront get made, where it's all about coming to terms with the fact that you sold somebody else out for your own benefit. So, boy, don't look at me so bad. And so, yeah, obviously there's famous sort of rat sort of characters in like The Godfather and stuff like that. But yeah, that's one of those things that kind of happens. And people generally historically would look down on that. And so that's why usually when you see the gangster Story better to go out dying than to go out the Goodfellas way. Again, also tying into the city, where it's like you're taken away from your position of power. It's like no, 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 no. I have to die. (laughs) Like you are given the choice.
1: Yeah, and going out the Goodfellas way is also really difficult. And maybe you know, for somebody like Ash who doesn't have as many connections, but like there was some videos that I was watching with a guy who was mentioned in Goodfellas, who was like a real guy in the mafia and who basically turned states evidence and like had to go into witness protection for mm-hmm. years and like now i guess he's able to kind of exist openly and be like yeah i was in the I, mob and he talks about i
2: know him. that guy i know the guy you're talking about he was in witness protection and got kicked
0: right. out yeah Hen- henry Twice. but again it's just yes. because so he
1: was he was the yeah. character
0: ray liotta played and his name is the same in, rea- yeah. Yeah. in reality but again it ties into man i used to have it all and now i'm just some guy and this is horrible sort of thing yeah. mm-hmm. and so in those interviews that that guy frequently gives whether it's to Terry Gross or Emmy Goodman or whatever. He says, like, listen, I know someday someone is going to come for me, like some upstart looking to make an impression. And all I ask is that they just take me. They don't take my family or whatever it is. But again, in his mind... That's how he he wants to go out. You know, he can't be seen as like some guy who just lives a dull life in suburbia. Well, I mean, giving all those interviews probably protects him a little Uh, bit. Maybe. But as far as as Ash goes, Anime Next, uh, I think this is another part of the interview. They sort of asked the staff. uh, They obviously didn't talk about this sort of stuff because it's the ending. But they were like, what do you cut out? And the answer is... The subplots throughout this in the manga, there's a lot of stuff pertaining to the police doing investigations or, hey, we have to make sure that this is not 100% gay. So let's have a hetero romance develop (laughs) between Mm -hmm. two sub characters. That's all gone. But again, the reason given is, hey, I only had 24 episodes. I did not have 39 like I would have liked. And so... They said, all right, well, this is what we're focusing on. And so the downside to that is that it's basically the Ash-Links show. And Ash was the least popular character for the animators to actually animate because you have to make him look good all the time and it's very difficult to make sure that there's no derpy shot of ash links because that wouldn't be acceptable to the people they also said one of them said hayashi said if i were to marry a character it would be shorter i think he'd be a good dad and then uh utsumi sort of also said uh ash could wear anything and still make it look good and there's certainly a lot of occasions where for comedic purposes they have to put Ash in a ridiculous outfit as a disguise but it's also you know as fan service to the people mm-hmm. got to give them what they want
1: absolutely and I think overall I don't feel like anything they were able to trim stuff that wasn't like centrally important and so it would have been nice to get all of that extra stuff in there all of those you know like side scenes and things like that but ultimately I think they were really able to get all of the important core plot and relationship stuff into those 24 episodes so
2: I I'm the one here who hasn't read the manga and so I'm coming from a complete blank slate and for me it seemed to work fine. This is a very complicated story. Yeah. Like your head will be spinning watching this to try to connect <laughs> okay this person knows this person through this person and this person is doing this to this person and to keep it straight You gotta
1: be like Charlie Day with that, yes, that
2: like, board with the stream. Yeah, right, like, I, I was afraid of like saying anything while we were watching it because then I seem like the dumb guy but Seriously. I've watched this twice now and it is still I can tell you like what the story is but I couldn't tell you like the details or how it gets from A to B yeah. to C because it is dense and it is very very complex
1: yeah I mean there's a good number of players and it spans a decent number of time and it's fairly complicated and it touches on because it's a big conspiracy there's elements of like politics that mm-hmm. come into it as well and that's the thing is like the biggest change of course is that they modernized it and yeah. I understand They, I think it was from that same anime next interview where Utsumi is saying, you know, like, I don't want to lose the catch the series has, which is the reason why it's a hit, so pleasing the original fans is a determining factor, but I want the younger generation who haven't heard of Banana Fish before to be interested enough in this work to watch it. I thought by making the setting modern, it'll be a lot easier to attract a new audience. And I do wonder if that's maybe a difference between, because I know, like, in the U.S. right now, like, 80s retro stuff is really popular, but I don't know that that's so much the case in japan so i actually wonder in on the u.s side of things whether keeping it as an 80s like period piece would have affected a newer audience getting into it
2: i have a few things to say about this i should say that i love this show i think it's a fantastic show beginning to end
1: well i think we're all thinking like the same things about the change in time period because
2: I, i'm pretty sure i'm going to be
1: new york city in the 70s and the 80s was a totally different place from new york city now
2: yeah i feel like the author it can be, it can be Yoshida was informed by the New York of that day. Oh, definitely. I mean, if we you know go back, I believe New York went bankrupt in what, 79 or 80 or so. And so we talk about defund the police, which is not a bad idea. But the idea is you like move that money into other services. What if everything got defunded? All services garbage disposal. Everything. Nothing was happening, and that's what basically happened in New York. The
1: inner city area, yeah, the inner city areas of New York were just basically abandoned. And I think this is maybe also something that stands out to an American audience more than a Japanese audience, because a Japanese audience probably isn't as familiar Mm. with New York City and the way it's changed over time, unless they like watch a ton of media. But yeah, I mean, the 70s and the 80s for New York City was like a totally different time period. I mean, the late 70s and the early in mid 80s was like the huge crime wave
2: i mean i went to new york in the 80s i was very young then but i remember they told us don't don't proceed past this point don't be outside past this hour mm-hmm. yeah that so they told us in the yeah. hotels do not be out after about nine o'clock and do not like we were in times square and they said do not go more than two or three blocks outside of times square do not do that you will be mugged
1: even Times Square, maybe this was more in the 70s, but even Times Square was, like, full of, like, it was, like, porn theaters. Absolutely, and And that's the other thing. Like, there's a reference in here where Ash at one point says something about, like, being popular in Times Square. And
0: if you say it today, it's like, oh, what does that mean? You're, like, a mascot, like, for a restaurant?
1: In Times Square at the time, like, that was where all the teen prostitutes worked.
2: Right. And what is interesting is that the show seems to jump back and forth in weird ways. And by that, I mean...
1: The production team did right. go to And the to thing New is York. that because yes.
0: they went to New York and, and they- that old New York doesn't exist, you can't really get the original reference material that you'd want to draw a New Yorker back right. then. You'd have to have a lot more money or a lot more time. Like, I remember being very impressed with um, the Joker movie that just came out because they did this amazing job of making it look like it was this 70s, 80s New York setting. Yeah that isn't there anymore. What's interesting is they very explicitly set this in
2: modern New York. But there are times where it slips back. One of the most obvious ones and the ones that like hit me- The subway. Was the subway. If you're listening yeah. to this now and you can do this, go onto Google and type in 80s subway New York and then type in just subway New York into another tab and open up both of the yeah. images. And the 80s subway New York, that's what we got in the show. And yeah. it's weird to see.
1: A couple of things I was looking at was there's a couple articles on New York transit in the 1970s in New York Transit in the 1980s. And they have some of these photos. So for context, by 79, over 250 felonies per week were recorded on the New York subways. Oh, oh. By
2: 1980,
1: it started declining. And so by the end of the 80s, they had cleaned up the graffiti. Also, the gang aspect of it is different too. Certainly gangs still exist in New York. And gangs in some areas, like there are still gangs in Chinatown. Sure. But it's not the same extent. Chinatown used to be a huge hub for about 20 years from the mid 70s to the mid 90s like there was huge organized gangs in Chinatown that ran everything and the 70s and the 80s you know you had a ton of gangs now most of those were black or Hispanic not quite as many like white gangs as you kind of see in Banana Fish although certainly it's not like it's all white like they even make it a
0: point in a plot that he somehow got a very racially diverse mix in his gang that you typically don't see yeah yes yes right
1: and there are definitely in addition to the Chinese gang like one of the black gangs is also a factor and they do show up in
0: yeah the localization in the original manga of you know how the black gang spoke is a little more as how I would expect them to talk but you probably should not be using that sort of dialogue in verbal speech (laughs) yeah 2018 yeah
1: it was a little awkward it's just not the same kind of area and I mean the 80s banana fish started coming out in the early 80s in like 84 85 and the 80s was also win like the big crack epidemic started happening Mm -hmm. now that was more towards like the mid and then through the late 80s and Banana Fish was still being but the idea
0: of this super drug that causes all these horrible problems on the streets was on everybody's mind
1: so that's the other thing too is like culturally there were things going on because like I was thinking about and I haven't found anything about whether Yoshida was aware of this or had any intention of it but the whole thing with the subplots about child abduction and child sexual assault and child trafficking in the late 70s and in the 80s there were two like huge moral panics that happened in the United States. The late 70s, you had a couple of high profile crimes related to child abductions. Hmm. And that kickstarted what people may know as this whole like stranger danger, right. which was for years and years and years. That's where the whole like don't talk to strangers thing came in. And in actuality, statistically speaking, almost all kids that are kidnapped or sexually assaulted are victimized by people that they know, Mm -hmm. like members of their family or close friends. So telling kids to stay away from strangers while not necessarily a bad idea is also not going to address the vast majority of cases where this happens. But there were a couple of high profile cases that got a lot of media coverage that involved stranger abductions. And so it was a huge thing. And then in like the early to mid 80s, well, actually then through to the late 80s, then you had the whole satanic panic thing, which was a whole nother thing. And that was a little bit different, but that also revolved around a lot of conspiracies about vast child trafficking networks. In this case, it was through daycares. Although I was kind of laughing because one of the things is that there's a restaurant that's used Yeah, in Banana
0: Fish, there's a a restaurant that's a a front for the child sex ring. Right. They did not serve pizza at the restaurant as far as I can (laughs) tell.
1: (laughs) No, it was a seafood restaurant, I think. But that did sort of come around with Pizzagate again, although Pizzagate is much more of a Fringe, well, you gotta you gotta uh, hand it to them. They got theory.
0: most of the details right about Pizzagate. It just turned out that the people behind it wasn't Hillary necessarily, but it was Epstein and Bill and Trump and all <laughs> these guys on Sex Island getting the kids. But not the not the not pizza, the pizza place. restaurant,
1: though. Yeah. By comparison, the Satanic Panic thing was like a massive cultural wide thing, not like a fringe conspiracy theory.
2: Yeah, I'm very curious, and I feel like I understand from the producer's and the director's perspective of setting it
0: in modern times.
1: I mean, I get the idea of, like, it's a modern story.
0: And I get the pragmatic idea of you have no choice.
1: Yeah. They do a reasonably good job, I think. So, like, they translate a couple things. So, like, Vietnam is no longer Vietnam. It becomes, you know, the endless war. Right, which, you know,
0: you can have that be the Um, same reference for 20 years. Yeah, you're stuck in the Middle East.
1: Yeah, yeah. In the original, like, part of the whole, like, plot that was going on was there was a, basically a deal between the syndicate and the government. They were going to run a conspiracy that they would work together and they would use this plan to, like, destabilize stuff in right Central Central and South America. Right, because was the idea was the American government would benefit, because this is post-Cuba, the American government would benefit by dealing with the Sandinistas and the political destabilization and regime change that they wanted and the organized crime would be able to take over the, get the cocaine drugs. smuggling pipeline
0: that was the original story I mean, and then they changed it
1: yeah so they translated that again to the middle east so they replaced the cocaine trafficking with the poppy trade because afghanistan that's was,
0: where the heroin comes from right
1: unfortunately it doesn't quite work because so heroin usage it does still continue in the U.S., but it's not as prevalent as the use of prescription opioids as well as the synthetics like fentanyl.
0: Now, that said, if you want to destabilize the Middle East, it's true that the Afghan farmers, oh, I'm sorry, not not Afghanistan, Afghanistan that's the only thing fictionalize <laughs> right? the country because yeah. you don't want to make it seem like you're speaking ill of another country that happens to be real sure. that you're stuck in war in but it's true that the farmers there like yeah. yeah they make more money growing the poppies and selling to the cartels right. than they would growing regular crops.
1: Now, it doesn't make sense from a trafficking perspective, because technically the vast majority of the heroin and the synthetic opioids in the U.S. come through Mexico. Right. And the synthetics, the second area they come from is China. So probably it still wouldn't make that much sense because it would actually be more difficult to move things from the middle east to america versus moving them over land through mexico but eh, whatever again like you have to know a pretty detailed yeah amount. and i guess at the end of the
0: day it's still the corsican mob and so yeah you can yeah. transport it from the middle east to europe through a land route and so yeah maybe they could sure shore up their home turf that way or yeah. whatever
1: and so yeah. again and- i think this is stuff that probably stands out more to an american viewer maybe although even now i I mean, a lot of new people that are, like, younger people that are watching probably don't know any of this stuff anyway, so.
2: My point in bringing it up was, I think, I understand pragmatically that they had to set it in modern times, because to get that, it's much easier for them to take a trip to New York than it is to have to look up, you know, what does this avenue look like back in the 80s? What does this place look like back in the 80s? Yeah, I think it's just a little bit of a shame, because as a story, it is an indicatively 80s New York story that they're trying to tell when she brings up Midnight Cowboy sure you could remake Midnight Cowboy and modernize it but you lose virtually everything of what that movie was trying to be and what what it was trying to tell
1: and I think it would have been really interesting if they decided to leave it a period piece but I understand why they didn't and I think they did probably the best possible job
0: yeah I think it actually potentially opens a much bigger can of worms if you keep it in the 80s because in the 80s and a story that is so much about people who are gay this is like the height of HIV AIDS epidemic. And this story doesn't really delve in that. Like maybe at one point where after he goes to the infirmary, it just offhandedly times. gets mentioned. But like, I, I get the feeling there'd be like a whole lot of very angry people. I'd be like saying, hey, how, how dare you gloss over this by telling this supposedly 80 story and omitting this That's true. setting it in more modern day. It's like, OK, well, there's not this horrifying AIDS epidemic to the extent that it was back when Reagan refused to acknowledge that it existed. Right. I mean, I think it would have been interesting if they tried. It would have been difficult, and I
2: understand. And I think it, it's rough because I feel like it, it was kind of important to set this in that time. But I understand that they did.
0: Yeah, I think just as, again, like, since I'm thinking of it from, like, a gangster perspective, I think, in generally speaking, if you want to tell a modern gangster's tale, you, it has to be set in the modern day. Although, of course, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. stuff like, you know, what Scorsese has recently done, it's like the framework is, well, I want to tell a story mostly in the past, so I'm going to have flashbacks. But still... Right.
1: And you still get stuff about prohibition. But that's
0: just because the people making it see it as an aesthetic now. It's like, oh, okay, you know, Tommy guns with this kind of drum and, you know, this kind of suits and these kind of cars. Because, again, those were all the status symbols of success. And, you know, oh, we think this is cool. But at Mm -hmm. some level, if you make like those sort of stories now, people look at it and it's like, okay, well, that was then. We don't have to worry about that. This is now just like a boardwalk empire sort of thing. Like it's not really the same sort of visceral impact, as if to say, like, here's a story that embodies our contemporary love. Sure. But what's informing the story
2: is completely different, is what I'm saying.
0: There's a few places, certainly, where I can point out and say that seems a little incongruous. But the most glaring aspects, they went out and changed. Because obviously, in the 80s, it's already quite something that in the original source material, that there's aspects to do with computer hacking and using a modem to dial into a network. Like, you know, that stuff is pretty cutting edge for its time but very yes
1: nowadays like right one of the jokes is the older characters and like don't understand anything about computers
0: yeah and so now where it's like the circumstance of like okay here's how I have to get into a network or look something up or now we have cell phones and smartphones that stuff is actually much harder to make a story make sense than the stuff that is like kind of sticking out to me the real hard work they actually did I was thinking of this movie that nobody else likes but maybe me the American remake of old boy Korean movie Old Boy, Spike Lee remade it with Josh Brolin. And this movie is generally reviled, but I actually looked at it and I was like, you know what, people forget how many decades ago the original one was. Now there's Google and now there's all this stuff and he had to still like say, like, oh well, why is this a mystery? You wouldn't have to spend all this detective work on it, you would just go do this instead. Right. And banana fish the anime, like they accommodate that because hey, there's ways to learn this stuff now, so we have to make the mystery be this now instead. Well, there was a scene when we were watching it, there was a
2: scene where they went to the library and were you know looking up like reference books and stuff, which I'm not saying people don't do that, but today, that's not your first step. Even in this,
0: it's not necessarily the first step because Ash Links, they do show him on a laptop and looking up stuff on Google and stuff like that so yeah. going to the library is like And also one
1: of the things and this ties into the ending is that Ash likes the right. library yeah. It's also a place that he likes He going goes
0: to. there because in the world of Banana Fish the New York Public Library is not a place where oh, assassin is going to kill John Wick 15 minutes before his excommunicado kicks in <laughs> and therefore you know you can uh, need to murder someone in the library using the gun that you keep in a book in a library because who the fuck Go to the library. That isn't really a factor <laughs> here. You can go to the library and be like, all right, here's a, a rationale to draw Ash wearing his fetching glasses and have an A.G. Yeah. go and procure from him a giant stack of books and then get Chili Dogs. And
1: I guess that's one of the locations that probably hasn't. Really yeah, changed.
0: that's a place where you can still yeah. go and it still basically looks like that because libraries don't get fucking funded.
1: <sighs> so do we have anything else we want
0: to say about Banana Fish?
1: No, I don't think so. It's I mean, it's fantastic. Go watch it. Go pick up the manga. It's all out.
0: Yeah, both digitally and in print. Yep. And again, the first couple of volumes were edited by Carl Horn and Rachel Thorne, who's credited as Matt Thorne in the original credits. And then the second part, they did it over again. It's all under Viz's shojo line. Pulp is interesting because from Pulp, you kind of got the Sigiki line and then the Viz signature line, but they didn't release it under that. Mm-hmm. They didn't say like, oh, here's what we're going to do here. We're going to call this shoujo. And I actually think it's beneficial to do that because I've long complained that the variety of shoujo that we get now or that gets made now, it all seems to be romance stuff. And not all shoujo is that. I like shoujo sci-fi. I like this sort of stuff. And it does, I think, work to just give people this idea like, hey, it's not all this stuff. Back in 97, their big challenge was, hey, manga isn't all martial arts and giant robots well by keeping that shoujo label on it's like well shoujo isn't all girl in school uniform running with the toast in her mouth kind right. of stuff
1: i certainly wish that we got more look you know i like romance stuff i do enjoy it but i do wish that we got more shoujo stuff like this as well
2: unfortunately i think it's uh and i mean you know the the queen of shoujo magical emmy would be the better person to answer this but <laughs> from what i understand they just don't make a lot of. Shojo today and what is there is like 99 100% romance right. which is unfortunate because i would love to see
0: shoujo sci-fi again more of that again yeah so. I, that's part of why i really liked otherworld barbara because the recent work but of course it's moto so of course he's gonna go that route but i found another press release for immediate release viz communications proudly presents pulp manga for grown-ups september 22nd 1997 in japan men and women of all ages read weekly comic magazines with circular of up to 1,500,000, and they're not reading about superheroes. Fizz Communications proudly announces the January 1998 release of Volume 2, Number 2 of Pulp, Manga for Grown Ups, the only monthly anthology of the diverse sexual alternative real manga from Japan's top manga magazines for a general adult audience. So that whole thing was like their repeated catchphrase marketing tagline for what Pulp was. (laughs) And so in Akimi Yoshida's Shoujo, parentheses, girls comic thriller, Banana Fish. Male porn star Ash is hounded by his ex-lover, Papadino, mob boss of New York, while trying to analyze a strange drug. That's the press release description of Banana Fish.
1: Probably shouldn't call him a porn star if it was non-consensual child porn. Papadino is his
0: ex-lover, who is also the mob boss. Again, This is like when you're looking at the manga video, Pat LeBor, the movie, brings together Japan's top animators. They only have one hour to... What the fuck are you talking about, manga entertainment?
1: Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it also doesn't scan as well to be like, child porn victim.
0: (laughs) Right. Child
1: porn victim
0: turned delinquent murderer... Ash Lynx on the run from his rapist gangster slash drug dealer old man not really Telly Savalas it doesn't have as much zip to it I guess no but again, one of the things they were trying to do with this with Pulp was to get traditional American comics readers to read manga. And so right, this yeah. was their idea. It's like, OK, well, we'll get Strain and Dance Till Tomorrow and Black and White, you know, from Tai Matsumoto, Attack on King Crete, and Heartbroken Angels. And it's interesting that when they put together the San Diego Comic-Con 16 page preview of Pulp, it had advanced looks at the columns and the manga, and the only thing that was not selected for Pulp at the time of the Comic-Con was Banana Fish. Now, I don't remember, I don't, you'd have to ask Jason Thompson this, whether or not that was, there's no way we'll get the San Diego Comic-Con people to be on board with Banana Fish, or if it was they just didn't have the rights to it at the time they had to go to print with the Comic-Con thing. Mm. My guess is it's, you know, when they said it wasn't selected for Pulp at the time of the Comic-Con, sort of suggests that they were still working out the licensing rights. But there might be an interesting story with that. I think what's interesting is at that time... Because that's the
2: only one that isn't in seinen. Well, I was thinking that what is interesting is when you we were mentioning that they were trying to get American comic book readers to read manga, and this was like the big battle at the time. And now they've just fucking given up on that because those right. guys just have no interest in manga at all. In fact, they hate the stuff. But now the audience for manga is like 10 times bigger than it ever was right. for American And I mean it
1: makes sense because I can understand the idea of like well most American people don't read comics and so therefore it might be a hard sell to get people that don't read comics at all to read manga. I'm glad that it turned out not to be the case.
2: Right. That everybody wants to read comics. It's just that if the only thing you're allowed to ever write about ever is people in skin tight costumes then that actually Well and
1: you have to go to specialist shops to buy it.
2: And you have to go to specialist shops
1: And you have to spend a ton of money
2: And anything you have to write, you can write whatever you want, but it always has to tie back into being about people in skin-tight costumes. But- well, right. don't worry, Gerald, because now that's what our cinema industry is. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's what Joker is. I mean, it's not a skin-tight costume, but a Joker, I like Joker a lot. It's just interesting that...
0: I love that movie. It's just a movie that the only way you get the money to make it is okay, well, this is actually about the Joker, surprise, right. and you right. like, tell the same story and not change a thing. But if you don't have it say, and this guy's the Joker, that nobody goes to see your movie. Right. No one's interested even looking at it. And so that was the challenge that Viz and Dark Horse and stuff had yeah. with releasing these things and convincing somebody to write it. They'd flip the artwork and say it's a Viz graphic novel and the release and the floppy like you know the case of pulp they didn't have that but
1: yeah that was like the Blair Witch video game is like was thinking, it's like it feels very much like this is a game that they wanted to make and in order to be able to make it well we got to put a Blair Witch label on it
2: it's almost like you can see the pitch meeting where they're just like I want to make this gritty like New York style story about like the drugs and the underside of it and the executives are just sitting there tapping their fingers says about the Joker like oh (laughs) oh, yes and they stand up and start clapping but uh, (laughs) brilliant Brilliant.
0: And everybody in the subway stood up and clapped after I got into a gunfight and shot 5 of them. <laughs> and then uh, the conductor just kept on chugging right along cuz that's just the New York subway in 2018. Yeah.
1: But,
0: yeah, I think Banana Fish is an excellent show. It's weird. Amazon, they
2: only license one or two shows a season. But usually one show a season, but the one show that they like zero in on the one show that is like contender for the best show of the season.
0: They've had a pretty good track record or maybe I have yeah. a Collective memory of what it is that they've picked up because, like dororo and Banana Fish and mm-hmm. stuff like that, these are all like, oh wow, great shows. What's that it, the saga? More show, people the... should see. Yeah, oh, Vinland Saga. Right. Yeah.
2: Like all of, like it's not a lot of stuff, but they zero in on good stuff. Totally worth watching. I think you need to watch it with like a conspiracy theory board up, so you're not going to be <laughs> as confused as I am about. I
1: trolling. haven't heard anything about whether there might be a Blu-ray release. I mean-
0: They've not done any Blu-ray releases for Amazon stuff. Yeah, nobody is, again, there's no plan as far as I can tell, like nobody announced.
1: I would really like a nice limited edition. Yeah, I I think
0: it's one of those things where they're looking at it and they say, we realize it's popular, but if we license it for this, we have to dub it. That's Mm -hmm. what a lot of places might say, but other people might say, well, you know, we can do it, but wouldn't uh, be as high profile you know they they probably are conflicted as far as like because such a fundamentally american tale so much about like the american dream and stuff like that as many gangster stories frequently will talk about the pursuit of the american dream it really makes sense that the character's speak English and so to do an English dub of something like this almost seems like if you don't you're missing a major opportunity the problem is is that okay what do you do with this English dub because there's no chance of I'm not saying no chance but there's very little chance of this getting on TV or something like that so you'd have to do it and then not just have it on a home media release but also stream it somewhere but Amazon's got the streaming rights which
1: is a shame because I feel like it could probably do well I think so I mean
0: it had a following as it was airing this wasn't like like this unheard of show. A lot of people were watching it at the time. Of course, it's finished now so they've moved on but right. it's one of those things where, yeah, I don't know if it's one of those areas where the people who watched it, are they going to stay even paying attention to anime to know that a physical release came out? I mean, mm-hmm. I always wonder this and sometimes it works out in my favor and sometimes the thing comes out eventually and then nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, hopefully, maybe at some point uh, somebody will pick it up for distribution.
2: I would like a physical release of this like I would like for Rakugo
0: Shinju
1: I know I want like a beautiful deluxe edition for both of those things but at the very least it is still streaming
0: for now as of this recording I always harp this point <laughs> but streams can vanish <laughs> yes without is warning yes, without any warning they
2: will just disappear and then your favorite show is gone that's why I've got my pile of unwatched DVDs that I am going through yeah very slowly
1: and even if it disappears the manga is still available as well
0: yes yeah this is done a very good job keeping that re-release available and you can get the yeah. whole thing though that being said you're talking 19 volumes and even the digital release at six bucks a volume you know it can add up
1: but i i definitely recommend it
0: all right good stuff good good stuff so that's gonna do it for a show number 189 of the anime world order podcast once again the website is www.animeworldorder.com you can email us at animeworldorder at gmail.com. follow us on Twitter at animeworldorder. Let us know what you think about this episode or any of our previous episodes, which are still available for download. Final thoughts on banana fish. Hmm, what you say. Uh, <laughs> you well.
1: Oh no!
0: You decided this. Clarissa didn't talk to me for a month
2: after I posted that.